all of my career and all of my life in, you know, mental health and counseling services, I've never seen that much progress and that much um, movement around health and wellness. And in biking, it just happens just naturally. It's a, it's it's there and and people do it and they experience all that without knowing that that's what is happening. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you'll hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 94 features Marvin James and Jermaine Simonson of Resduro. Resduro represents a mountain bike community within the Navajo Nation, aka the Diné Tribe in northern Arizona. I do have to apologize as I did not know that Marvin was going to go straight into the heart of the conversation right out of the gate, so there's a little bit more that didn't get recorded early on. But this conversation goes on for nearly three hours, so there's still a lot of incredible information here. I do encourage everyone to listen to the whole interview as there's a lot to unpack here around Resduro with a ton of history that most of us never got taught in school about indigenous natives here in the United States. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with tagging Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Marvin and Jermaine. You know, and, and so there I was thinking about, okay, the old folks used to say, you know, we're going, we want to mend the hoop. How can we help ourselves mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually? And so when you punch all those things in, and in the end, that high that you get, that thing that you're seeking, the natural pleasure is being at peace, you know, the, the pleasures of whatever you seek is that, that the, you're happy, that peace of it, it goes like, you know, like kind of Buddhism, Taoism, what is happiness, the pleasure of what you seek. So this, that feeling of the natural high without taking any any drugs to, you know, obtain that and having to stay up there and, and creating that addiction. And so you kind of get addicted to it. And, and, and so the, the healing that there's the healing that it has. So it's a very, I guess the circle in itself is, is something really powerful. Just like say, for example, a talking circle. What is that? Um, you go to um, go to get help somewhere, 
And of course, they're like, okay, we're going to have a talking circle, you know. And so that was that was what I I envisioned. And that was what I that was what it showed me. So from here and then within two years, the first res duro, how everybody just came together and we had a race here and it wasn't really about the race. It was about just bringing the community, the overall thing. And so, okay, this year was totally different again. So then, and, and so what we saw this year at the, at the Resduro this year. And so how biking has, um, the bike has um, expanded again on the reservation in all directions. And so, yeah, that's, that was kind of what I, 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 the experience, my personal experience anyway, just with this, this little time of riding. And I used to ride when I was small, um, younger, younger days. I had some, um, uh, riding experience, but I didn't have the trails. I mean, we had, we built our own trails, you know, when you're, you're a kid, you build wooden jumps and whatnot. But coming this far along, I didn't know that I would get back on the bike. I kind of forgot about it. And um, I was fortunate that my son, he wanted to do that. And, and he had a good experience. And if it wasn't through him, I don't think we, we would be this far along and where we're at and, and what we're doing. And, and so... Uh, and so I, I, I want to thank him for that, you know, having that good uh, thought. And, and then his mom, too. His mom is the best, the best support. And she supports us in everything that we want to do. She never says no when we want to do something. And she even encourages us when we should be doing other things, like more writing. She uh, has our back a hundred and a hundred percent and maybe a little more than that you know she gives it all and some to for us to to go be able to go out and and do that and not only that but a hundred percent in other people's um activity and their involvement around biking and that's how that's how she is you know and I, I don't know where we would be, you know, if it wasn't for her to encourage us and to really, we're really hesitant or like cautious with, um, for me, like funding or like money, you know, <laughs> these bikes aren't cheap. They are pretty expensive and it's, it's really nice to have a really nice bike that can, that you can ride. And, and so it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a cheap activity, meaning that you, you have to have. So for us, we, we had to have like some kind of financial stability um, in the beginning because we had to go to different towns, our nearest town to ride these trails that we, that we liked. Flagstaff, Sedona really nice trail systems really nice places beautiful places to ride 
And so that's where we used to, we, we, we go there. We used to go there. And then along the way, we realized that, hey, we, we have these things here at home. There's certain places that, that are very similar in landscape and terrain. So she always encouraged and she was like, come on, guys, wake up. <laughs> we have these terrains here at home. So then me, I'm like, it, it takes like a while for the light to come on and finally see the picture. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, we do. Okay, how do we, we had to travel long ways to, to go to these uh, trails. And so now it's like, well, let's make it here. A lot of these kids that, uh, so that we got involved with and that have, that have come to ride bikes. And there's a lot now within the last few years, there's a lot of programming going on. You know, a lot of, uh, say, I want to give a shout out to Scott Nightem. We got to meet him. Scott Nightem, he, he resides in Gallup and he's had a, we, we connected with him and he had a real, he has a real good vision in what, uh, from his experience uh, being a uh, ex uh, uh, racer, uh, road biker, so he's been around the industry. He knows, you know, uh, everything and all the programs that are happening throughout, like with Nika and Outride and Project Bike Tech. He's bringing, he's making all these things available and kind of leading the way. And what he's done within these last few years is unbelievable. And so it's, um, you know, up to us here to reach out and try to take, bring some of that in, into our community. And so the Navajo reservation is really big. Um, it's really big. It's like, uh, it's like two, three States, you know, up that way. I, um, uh, I forgot how many thousand acres it is. Yeah. It's about the size of West Virginia. And so, you know, it's to cover that amount in different areas is it's kind of a task um, in regards to our daily lives. So it's like, how do we put this looking at these models, uh, biking community models of empowering the community? We're not good at that yet. But when we do, you know, we will we'll, we'll see it explode more. So yeah, to him and all throughout the um, throughout our journey here, the people that we've met. Forgive me for not mentioning, you know, uh, there's a lot out there. Uh, Vincent Salabai has been a real good inspiration to the young kids as a coach, a mentor. There's a lot going on on the reservation for women too, for the women, women folk, uh, females, Claudia Jackson's doing a great job in Indian Wells. And so the Navajo reservation is compromised of three states, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona and parts of Colorado. But we, we, they, they gave some of the land back to, to on that side. So. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's really, there's so many stories to tell, you know, but that's my experience, um, up to this far and, and what the bike 
has going right now and the wheels are barely starting to roll um it's 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 starting to get going the the scene just everything is starting to go and and so how do we you know we always i i'm asking myself how can i be of a better tool to the people with the bike i guess what is my what can be my mission what can i do to be a better person with the bike to help my people because in the end that's that, that that's what it is you know that's all we want for our kids as we say natives we say that you know the, the younger generation yet to be born and then the old folks too so we we always put those people first and foremost those are the ones that eat first those are the ones that drink water first and so what are what what are we looking for the the young the future generation where we want to be and how we can how how I can help them and what what I can you know establish here to help them whether it be uh, more trails so that they can come and ride here so that they can train here I know we have a, a variety of riders we have uh, road bikers and cross country but more of the the the, the ones that we that um, gravitate towards us is like the enduro riders <laughs> so they they like to go downhill and they like the the they like to do you know all the the hard lines the black lines and that's what those are the ones that want to that come here because of Nigel and his uh, enduro riding and so so what is it I was asking my wife you know what what is it that we could bring what is what did we what are we what do we want to do what do we want to imprint and leave and so, you know, with, with, uh, with the races here. And so I, uh, down soon, soon, I would like to create more trails for all disciplines of riding and then bigger stuff because the kids now that I see, they have, they have the, the technical, all that riding, they have it down with the landscape but what we don't have is like the big jumps the the bigger jumps where they can test themselves and say they go to a big event say they want to go even test themselves even bigger say EWS or you know these world cup things that's where they're going to be they're going to need that gap so like all the champions that I watch on tv or whatnot in the media it's like all this is in their backyard it's all in their backyard so they just get up and go out and get on their bike and it's it's there and they're bred into it they're like from the time they're small all the way to to their 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 it's just there every day so our youngins how do we how can i how can I put that, help them, you know, give them some, give that to them to a training ground, maybe where they can come and ride and build their confidence and, or just to ride and go out and get a ride in. And so, yeah, so that's what I, that's the overall. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit. So we're listening to Marvin James. 
And let's back up and talk about where you're exactly located. So you're in Arizona, and I believe it's Hard Rock, Arizona, correct? Uh huh. Let's talk about where that is and kind of what that, you know, geographically where that is in Arizona. Okay. Well, um, I just kind of jumped right into the gun and I just want to, I guess I should, I need to introduce myself first to all the, you know, people that are listening. So my name is uh, Marvin Kahlo James. I am of the uh, Bitterwater clan people and I was raised by the, uh, the mini, mini goats clan, they call it probably because they had a lot of, you know, sheep way back in the day. And then um, my paternal grandparent grandfolks are of the salt clan and my paternal grandparents is of the big water clan. So I guess I'm all of the water clan when I think about it, come from those people. Me, myself, I come from area called Sayle, and it is out, come, it's uh, in the middle part of the Chuska Mountains in uh, close to the Four Corners area. A lot of uh, Ponderosa, Aspen kind of country there, about seven, 8,000 feet elevation. So that's where I come from. Here in Hard Rock, this is um, the community I'm uh, calling, talking from the community. I'm married into the community of Hard Rock, Arizona, which is uh, on the Black Mesa, Black Mountain. It's actually called Black Mountain. Zilijin is the, 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 the Navajo name for it. Black Mountain. And so the Chuska Mountain, they say, is the male mountain. And Black Mountain is the female mountain. It's about an hour and a half to two hours northeast of Flagstaff, just exactly north of off of I-40. If you're uh, traveling on I-40, if you hit the town of Winslow and you head north about a good hour or about an hour, uh, I'd say it's about five, 6,000 here plateau and um, we have a lot of cedar trees uh, juniper trees juniper trees and uh, sandstone sandstone type of um, land features and this is where um, my wife and their clans are from here so yeah that's where I'm at that's where this is where Nigel's from and um, all his all the relatives here the clan relatives, uh, home of the, the Chisha people. Chisha is the uh, part of the Chiricahua Apache band. Now, some sometime way back, they made their way up this way and they made relations with the, Na, um, the 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 Navajos here, as they say. So, yeah. You know, you're talking about mending the hoop. Okay. You know, and and what you know, and what that means. Let's go into that again and what, you know, what the bike brings. Cause I think it's, I think it's similar across to everyone and what the, what the bike, what the bike can bring to people. It's, I know for me, for certain, you talked about that natural high, that's such an important thing in life, you know? Yeah. Um, so like I was saying, like, um, for me and for looking at, looking at it through the lens for, for my people. For, for all indigenous people, I guess, but for, for my people here, the Diné people, I always try to live 
the way of life that we were, the, the teachings that we were given, I guess you could say that's traditional ways of thinking, holistic ways of thinking. And um, I was telling my wife, you know, that as I get older, that's kind of how I want to live out the last of my, my life in my traditional home and maybe becoming a having a, a becoming a shepherd and just living on the land and 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 and, and surviving and you know doing living out my last of my life that way so within that with with that thinking you know like i said uh, with the bike and what bending the hoop means is uh, to me is uh, and I'm I'm speaking from this region, and and I'll take it take it some back from from the from the area here the area. So we here on Black Mesa uh, in Hard Rock, we the my my wife's people here and her relatives, they were devastated by resource extraction. Uh, Peabody coal came in in the early seventies. And they they started extracting coal for power plants, two power plants. The first one was the Mojave power plant. And what they did was uh, there was a, an agreement, the public law made 93531, in which was a which they was a, a which was called the Relocation Act. And so what the, the U.S. government did and the BLM is they, they came in and figured out where all the coal and resources were. And they, our neighboring tribe here, Hopi, they, they talked with them and they said, okay, some of you Navajos here, you live on Hopi land. And so we're going to award some of this land back to the Hopis and you're going to have to move. And so they moved thousands of of relatives, uprooted them their, from their traditional lands, and moved them to a, a different areas where where they where they gave them like sub subdivision housings and whatnot. And so anyway, the the coal mine came in, and they built a slurry line three hundred miles to the west of here to Bullhead City to the Mojave generating station and the slurry line they they built and they used the natural aquifer the in aquifer to pump powdered crushed coal to feed that power line uh, to feed that uh, power plant over there that power plant then provided power to other um, cities in the west none of that power came back here we we never got any of that. Along the way, they cre- also created the Kienta mine, and the Kienta mine, they built a uh, a railroad to the city of Page, and then they built a silo, which loaded the coal in these train tracks and provided coal on the daily to the um, the Navajo generating station. And the Navajo generating station provided power to the SRP, 
the Salt River Project, which then pumped water all the way up into Phoenix down to Tucson to provide water off of the Colorado. So all this power was being used off of the, the, the land here. Anyway, long story short, the, the people have gone through a lot here, a lot of trauma, just being uprooted from your home again. And so, you know, coming, looking at that lens, there's, there's a lot that, 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 that creates. It causes a lot of trauma. And when that happens, so we, they, they tell us that we are made up as a human being, five finger. We have our mental capacity, our social capacity, our physical being, and then our spiritual being. Those are the four things that make up our life. And so when you, when they say when you're out of balance, meaning say mentally, you're stressed, anxiety, you know, you're depressed, then that makes you sick. So when you get sick, you can be mentally sick or it can cause something physical. Then you start getting, you know, the whatever it is inside of you that, that then you have to go to the doctor. Then the doctor recommends, oh, you're lacking physical activity again. Why don't you go for a walk? Why don't you go, go run? So they all work hand in hand. And so when you figure, when, you, when I think about that, when, you're, when they say you're out of balance, then one of them, it's kind of like a plate. And you're balancing these, your physical, mental, social, spiritual on a plate like this. And they're all weighed the same broken up in fours. And so when you have too much on one side, then the balance, the scale kind of tips like that. So then you have to feed your this side again to stay in balance. So then Western medicine versus traditional medicine. Okay, something's on your mind. You go see the psychologist. So you go see the psychologist, go sit in there, sit in this. Okay, you're going to have to go to group. You're going to have to go sit in the circle again. <laughs> then you're going to have to speak your mind. What's on your mind? Yeah, anxiety, whatever it is. Uh, okay. Well, I think the best medicine for that is you go, maybe go on a bike ride, right? Or go on a run. And that's going to help your physical side again. And maybe you're lacking uh, prayer. Maybe you're lacking, you need some kind of strength to, you need that spiritual strength. You need some guidance, something to go to to go along and walk along that line. So anyway, going back into that, okay, how do we so this has happened to them all like I was saying before, the trail of tears, all that that has happened. And it stays in that historical trauma that, that has happened. And you know, that's real talk, all the things that have happened. And I'm not trying to feel sorry or I'm not trying to make people feel sorry for us, but the truth, that is the truth, what has happened. And if you, and if people really want to deep, dig deep and look within themselves, then that is the mirror to look at and to be, to, to, to really, you know, test all these things of what it is, what is community, what is it, then 
there. So with this hoop, all this has happened to all our people. I'm referring to indigenous people, and it could be somebody else too. It could be, it, it attains to, when you want to take it to, apply it to somebody else, another human being, it, it, it can happen. You can do that. So we're all five-fingered. You know, we all we all have our senses, and we're all we're all human. I think the only thing that separates us is our skin color, and you know, but that's just it—the color of our hair. We all have different genes, just like bikes. <laughs> They're all different, but they all do the same thing. They all function the same way. So, um, anyway, you know how how so how do we how do we um, help? the people that want help everybody's going through something doesn't matter everybody's got going through something there's not i don't think there's not one person that is perfect or that lives a perfect life we all have shortcomings somehow in 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 that perspective you know uh, going back to the to, to the mending the hoop so for me even if i get like somebody anybody a child an old person to get on a bike and to feel that experience, that freedom, it, it, it helps. Even just like one little session, one little ride, you feel good. And then I also was, I had this during the res duro, I had this uh, uh, kind of like this vision of, of that too, of way back in the day, say before the way we used to live traditionally. And on Friday, on Friday was the youth day. Friday was dedicated all to the youth. And that was for them, was for the young people. It was all about them on Friday. Whatever they wanted, we, it was for them. Not the old folks, but for the youth. And, and how we wanted to support them and to encourage them and to uplift them on, on, on that day. And so that day came and they were so anxious. I mean, they were, <laughs> they pulled in and the sun wasn't even up yet. It was still dark. And I could see like little kids running around outside, riding their bikes, <laughs> like waiting, anxious for the event to start. And, and then the sun started coming up and, and then they kept coming here. They came in the house and, walking around like they're at home and you know and so as the day went on and they started riding and just the the happiness of 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 the the noise the sounds that they were making the happiness of happy children happy a happy camp and it brought me to a time of just on, on the side of my eye they were riding their bike, but in, in, in the side of my eye and my vision, I envisioned them riding their horse, young kids riding horses at an encampment around here, just riding around, having fun, playing games. You know, that was what I envisioned. That's what I heard. And so that's what it was. It was like, hey, this is, there's, so the bike is like, kind of like for me, it was, the horse, it was the new horse of, of now. Some, a lot of us still ride horses around, but not like way back, uh, way back then. The horse culture, everything horse, 
point A to point B. That was that was the horse culture. And so that was what I, you know, that was what I envisioned. And so it was like, man, this is okay. How can we? So we use the horse for everything too. Horse is a teacher. Horse is the foundation of understanding responsibility. For us Native Americans, especially the Ne, the horse is 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 a very it's it's a most important tool in our culture because the horse can teach you a lot. The horse can teach you about life. The horse can teach you about yourself just through your body language. It can read you easily. It knows if you're scared and it's scared. It knows how you, you know, what, what you're about. The horse can do that. It's a very, it's a very powerful creature that was created and given, given to us, our people. And it has songs. It has stories that go along with it. And so that's how important it is to me anyway. And, and, and to every culture, every tribe is that way when you think about it. And so that was what I, that was what I, uh, that was what that vision that I got and seeing these young people. And then during the race, and then we saw my brother and then my father-in-law, they were on horse again. And then, so it all came together. And then these trails that were here, the trails before us, they were created by wild game and they were created by the horse. They were horse trails to get to point A to point B. They would travel on these mountains to get to where they needed to go. And so these trails that the kids were riding on, they're horse trails too. So they were old pathways that were that Nigel rediscovered while he was wanting to build trails. So he actually went outside and started exploring and he found these trails that were that were here, you know. So it kind of went in, it goes and ties in like with the the and maybe like the trails before us. And so how it all ties in to that was that was what I um that was what I imagined. That was the vision that I had. And the horse is medicine. The horse is medicine. So this medicine, they like if you winter times coming now, they would butcher a horse and you would eat horse meat. The best antibiotics, best antibiotics. You eat horse meat, you won't get sick. The, the flu won't bother you. It's the best antibiotics, they would say. And so our old people, they used to eat horse and they never got sick. They never got had to go to the doctor or anything like that. Nowadays, you know, they didn't, they didn't have any respiratory problems or any kind of um, problems to that way, fevers, things like that. And so the horse is a good, a good medicine. And it's a good medicine physically, too, because you use muscles that you've never used while you're riding a horse. So physically and then mentally, you make that connection with the horse too. Where you go, where you look, the horse is going to go there. Just like the bike, where you look, where you go, that's where you're going to go. And then physically too, you ride your bike, you're making yourself stronger, immune to sickness. Your muscles are strong. Your respiratory is strong. Your mental mentality is strong. 
and you're you're strong all over. So a good comparison to to the horse to the bike, and and so that's how that's the type of, of medicine that it has. And so if we could get more young people, and so now and even in 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 native communities, we have a big problem with with diabetes. We have a big problem with that killing our people. How can we get our people to exercise, to get awareness of their diets and what they eat? That connection back there again to the land, you know. It has a lot. There's a lot of things that the bike can help in that perspective. Indian Health Service here, the local community, they just purchased some bikes so that they can get the community on bikes. So how that model is going to look, they need trails, right? We can get all the bikes we, we want, but if there is no trail to ride the bikes, then, you know, then what are we going to do? And that right there is an important part of this whole podcast is you can mm -hmm. sell all the bikes you want, but what do you mm -hmm. do with those bikes if you get no order item? Let's stay on that topic. Cause we, before I hit record, you know, you had talked about how you were just at trail labs up in Cedar city. And then you talked about using trails as an educational piece and kind of what you envision with trails and getting, bringing people to certain locations to kind of bring them awareness about, you know, what this location may have meant to your culture, you know, a hundred, 200 years ago, you know, and how you, how the trail will help, you know, bring awareness to that. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So being at the trail labs and stuff, just sitting in and listening. And it was great that, you know, people were building miles and miles of trails and doing all that, you know. Yeah, it's great. The, the community, the city passed it. EPA, they all came out. But one thing I didn't hear was land acknowledgement. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. Oh, in this region here, there was this, these people, this tribe here. In this region here, there was these animals and plants that lived here. We ride through that. This is where this trail is. This trail, this, this land here, this ridge, this is, this is used to house whatever animals plants in that region so there was no to me there was no land acknowledgement awareness it was just bill 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 so how do you us humans were the worst ones i mean the life the the land will will fix itself the earth will fix itself the sky will fix itself the animals will always be here we're not important to this, to this, to this universe. We're just here. So we're the most dangerous species right now in this, in this universe, in this, on this land. And if we continue to go the way we're going, we're going to extinct ourselves. We can create all this awareness and knowledge and whatnot, but we need to, we need to educate ourselves. We need to make ourselves aware. 
that we are the most dangerous creatures here. That's what we need to do. So this trail labs, you know, we I went there, but I didn't see that. It was just bill, 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 but there was no land awareness acknowledgement of, of that. It was more kind of like, oh, yeah, nagging, we have to do EIS, all that. It was kind of like a, there was no, it was more like a burden. It was more like, let's go skip over that. Let's go jump over. Oh, we got to worry about environmental impact statements. We have to worry. It's going to take three years. They were more worried about their progression of building the trail than what they were going to destroy or even what was on the land. So that was what I, that was my takeaway from that. You know, it was good and all that. But for me, for these trails, the acknowledgement and to, for the young kids, maybe in 20 years, there might not be a remedy. Tylenol might not work anymore. <laughs> you know? So these plants here, they have all different jobs. They are here for a reason. These plants, a lot of them are medicinal plants. A lot of them are here for a reason, just like the trees. We need the trees. We need it to coexist. We can't just be going and cutting them. We're cutting ourselves short there. Different landmarks are important things that happen in history, in my culture's history, to stay existent, to stay existent. The more and more that we are not existent, we might just become part of, just part of the, part of it. But us Native Americans, we've always been here to take care of the land for while our time is here. By every little time, we're here. We're here to protect the land, preserve the land. That's what we have to do. We, we, that is our job here. We don't own the land. We don't own it. But from the creator, our job was to take care of the land, make it the most beautiful thing that it is to prosper in the way it was put here. Not to go and, and, and destroy it or to, to create whatever for selfishness, all that. No. So, so that is, you know, the trails uh, and uh, all these different landmarks, or wherever it is in history, those are important. We can't wipe that out. We can't erase it because that's our identity. That is our connection to, to the land. And each and every one of us are like that, no matter where we're at on this, in this, on this earth, whether we're in Asia, whether we're in Europe, whether we're in Australia, it's all, we're all the same. We all have to, it's all one. And so when I do create these trails is there'll be, I want to teach them what all these plants are how they can be used. Say someday, one day they're riding on there and I'll share a story with you from Nigel and what he showed us. 
we were riding one day and he stopped and we were out of water. <laughs> we didn't know we, we didn't take any water and we were tired or we were tired and we were thirsty. We were really that thirst. Our tongue, we started getting dry. And then he stopped and he went up to this one shrub, this shrub, and he took the leaves off. And then he took that, took those leaves and ate it. And he said, this is electrolytes. This is going to replenish us. And I didn't even know who he learned that from, you know, but he learned it from, from his, his grandma and his uncle that walked the land all the time on the land. So things like that is survival. How are we going to survive, right? That's, that's the key. Like I said, in the future, not right now, but later on, how we, what are we going to create? How are we going to live? If we pollute all our land, if we pollute all our waters, what are we going to drink? If we put a price on everything, what are we going to drink? Well, that's what we do now. We put a price on water. We have to, the most essential thing in life, there's a price on it. You have to buy it, <laughs> you know, but yet we go and destroy all the, all the waterways for what? Those things are important to me. So how can we get into the minds of our children when they're in that state out there with nature, riding, being on the land, that awareness of the land, that acknowledgement of the land, so that they can come to appreciate something that they have, to protect it, to preserve it for the future generations of all mankind, all human race, so that they can see that so that they can protect and preserve and we can continue on as a people in our existence in this world, you know, and who, who we coexist with, the things that live in the water, things that live in the ocean, the creepers, the crawlers, the four-legged, the things that fly, that live in the earth, you know, all these things, they're, they're alive. These plants are alive. They're alive and well. So how do I continue to keep that traditional knowledge and, and that awareness so that they can be better, better human beings to each other and to all that exists out there? And so, yeah. I know with uh, the Resduro, you're very careful as to where the trail placement is. Yeah. So the trails here at Res Duro, like I said, were there, there were already natural game trails. And so, you know, animal instinct, animals are way smarter than us. They know where to walk. They know where to go. They won't just take off anywhere and go just like how we did last night. <laughs> go and drive through all the washouts. <laughs> they know to stay on the plateau. They know where the waters are. They know what plants to eat. They know what plants are dangerous. They know how to survive and they know the trailways of the land and everything. They're not going to just walk across and walk through the washouts of where, <laughs> you know, they know. So the trails at Res Duro here were already the trails that were already in place, most of them. They were already here and we just, we just added to them. 
just natural features and rocks we we added to to that and a lot of the where they went we asked the the elders here because they're they're the not they're the knowledge keepers here still and so we asked them what plants are here can we maybe get off the trail and maybe do a little um diversion here and and so we had to ask permission first and they knew they knew the land and they they knew what was um important to the animals what the animals eat they knew what were like evasive plants and they knew what was like going to dry out they knew what did had a, a short lifespan so they were like yeah go ahead and you can you can divert the trail this way and so these plants are they're the animals don't eat them they're evasive they came from somewhere you know so yeah you can probably you know maybe take that bush out or you know so they knew they they were guiding us in which way to kind of their guide the trails and which plants were important and which plants they use for dyes because um the the life ways out here is um, mother-in-law and father-in-law they're shepherds and they have a, a the churro sheep the churro sheep has the best wool and so what they do is they dye the wool um, with these natural plants then they card and spin the wool and they create rugs and with these rugs that's their income they sell the rugs or give it away it has a lot of ma- a value and and meaning to it so a lot of these plants here they they have all have purpose for their life and and it gives back to them and they dye the the wool and they create different colors and then then they bring it back too and we eat it too we'll utilize it in herbs and and then there's herbs out there too cleansing herbs and we use a lot of it to to cleanse cleanse uh different things cleanse uh feathers and then there's tobacco out there too. We use it to, to as tobacco for prayers. So we we try to be as best as we can aware aware of of the lands, you know. And that's how we were just taught that way to be respectful in that way of wherever you are. And that's what we do when we go to different places. When we ride, I try to tell my son that take some tobacco. Let these bears, let these cougars, let these animals, rivers, flowers know we're just here for a little bit. So recognize us. And, you know, we're going to ride here. Keep us safe. No crashes. Protect us. Take care of us while we're here. Know that we're here. And so that we try to do it that way. And that's the thing is, you know, it's not like we're all spiritual or anything. It's just a way of life that we that we begin to try to understand that we instill that, that we're, that's just a way of life. That's how we were, we were taught, try and be respectful that way. So these trails like that, we, we will, however, we're going to integrate it and make it really nice and in that way. Uh, I'm still thinking about it. How can I implement these things of land acknowledgement, landmark, plant identification, plant use? And so that later on, you know, who knows the uh, apocalypse might happen. 
<laughs> there might be a food shortage. You know, all the pharmacies might get robbed. Then what's going to happen, right? So then we're going to have to go back to go back to the land because everything out, everything in the supermarket, all comes from the provider of the earth. All comes from it. Nothing is man-made. Everything is, everything's processed. You know, that's why everybody's going back to the whole foods and the natural grocers and living healthy, best way we could live. So anyway, that's kind of like full circle for me again, <laughs> that, that way of thinking. So it was Brandon from Dirt Tech Trails that actually brought us together. Oh, wow. And so that's who, you know, that's who connected me with Jermaine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he, he's an avid listener of this show and, you know, he was really, he's like, you really need to, you know, get this story told. So more people can hear, you know, what, mm. what you have, what's going on. It's, I think it's, it's super important. And I'm glad you brought up the acknowledgement of lands. You know, that's something that I think we all need to have more, more awareness around. It's, it's a, I hate to bring technology into this because all this that we've talked about hasn't been technology based, but like, if you look at, you know, I know trail forks, the, the, the mapping app, that is a, it's a pretty good mapping app. But I know when you look at a trail or you look at a region, like it talks about, you know, what indigenous people were there before us. Mm. It's a very important aspect of all of all of this. And, and I'm glad that, that you're talking about that and that we can bring awareness to that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Right on trail forks. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. You know, and. The res Duro, one of the things when I was doing some research, I, I always like to do a lot of research before these. Uh, shows and these conversations, but I know the Res Duro is one of the things I had read was that you're also using it as a catalyst for rider development, you know, and earlier on we talked about, you talked about EWS or World Cup and the stuff that you see, you know, so how, um, let's talk, let's get into that a little bit and using, you know, the trails and the Res Duro for developing future riders and, and Nigel, you know, and because he's racing, I I know I've came across some stuff that he's been even racing recently. It's a good outlet. You know, Res Duro, like I said, I'm still trying to get my uh, my head around it, and 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 using that as uh, there again. How can we so so pe kids people have dreams. A lot of them. Need support, I guess is the word, support. And there again, like I was saying, this this uh, this bike riding, especially enduro, is uh, is an expensive sport, and it, and it also takes a lot of support too. And a lot of these kids have dreams, and a lot of these kids have the physical ability. And the mental toughness ability that they can achieve and or however far they want to take it, however far their goals is, there's no end to it. However, I just heard it, I talked with the kid and I asked him, like me, I never really had goals growing up, you know, I just had that, but I wasn't really focused and to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go for it. When I wanted to, I did, but this kid I was talking to and 
and just kind of like feeling him out. I said, hey, uh, what kind of goals do you have? What would you like to be? What would you like to do? And just watching his social media and whatnot. And he said, I want to go to Red Bull. I want to ride in Red Bull Rampage one day, he said. And so, you know, that's a goal. That's a dream. And it's a big one. How can we be of support to these kids that are not as fortunate as Nigel? that are not as fortunate as as we are, that are not as fortunate that they can have money to put in the gas or the bike to go to some other nearby city and ride those trails. Why can't we provide that here? The same feeling, the same type of trail, the same type of we want to bring that to them. Try to help them out a little bit. We've had some bikes that we've that we put together for Nigel. And there was a couple of kids that we've seen that have potential. They they have potential, really good riding, and they ride every day. So we decided and we said, you know what? This kid, he doesn't have the financial means of getting this. What's the best thing you can do to give, right? So we gave this kid a suited up Ibis HD4 bike with all the top components. And within a month, his riding level and just everything just he's 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 very successful in his riding and his progression. And so res duro. He came here and rode. He was one of the kids that rode all day, rode so hard that he fell asleep in the afternoon in the in the in the rider's tent. <laughs> he wore himself out, you know. And we have other bikes that we have given away to young kids that want to ride. So we want that experience. How can we provide that here at, on these trails? And like I said, he wants to. Go to if he shows up at Red Bull Rampage and and he's never ridden those trails or like we need bigger jumps for him here <laughs> to give him that experience something safe too you know so every experience that they want whether it's cross country or enduro or even downhill if we could provide that here and give them that. And which we have, you know, they like to come here. They love these trails. And I want to thank Brandon for that too. And his dedication and his effort to come here, his time, him and him and him and his companion for free. <laughs> Who's gonna do that? Who's gonna do that for free? And, 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 and we told him and he already understood what was, what was here and the job that he did. It's like natural. It's like natural. The job that he did, he understood what, what we wanted here and what with the thoughts on the land. And he, and he was over there. He was with the grandmas. 
their grandmas, they were on the mountain up there. They were talking and they all were like, yeah, let's go. They had a vision. And he was, he was, he was with the grandmas. The grandmas were, he was out there with them, the original landlords. He was got the, yeah. He, so, you know, it was, it was cool, man. I really, I, I, I love Brandon. He's, he's a good guy, good person. And to have that come here, you know, it was, yeah, he created that, what the vision and, and the dream that we have and just for his little, t- he gave us that boy, kind of like that bike park and the berms he built for us and just like the land that he saw and, and how he made it. That was his boy. They, we loved it. And that's all we talked about. <laughs> you know, all we talked about the big berms that we built and, just the stuff that he brought, the flow trails for the kids. And yeah. That's pretty incredible to get that, to get that blessing too, of where to go, you know, from the original landlords, as he, as you said, Mm -hmm. in their vision and and for him to be able to interpret their vision, you know, and put that, put that down. One of the things that caught my attention when I was reading about the Resduro is the Resduro kitchen. Oh, Maybe I'll let Jermaine enlighten on that. <laughs> that sounds great. Wow. Well, like I'm listening to all of this and it just sounds really amazing. <laughs> Probably not your typical uh, trail building podcast. <laughs> but um, I don't know if there is a typical trail building podcast. You know, I try to be as diverse as I can with with the guests that we have on here and and so we, you know, it's everything from professional athletes to ju- to just regular, like literally, just regular people who really enjoy what mountain biking is bringing to them and their community. Right. And I think that's where the magic is, too. You know. Wow. Well, it sounds like you're bringing a really good group of folks together, or you know, getting to hear from them and and the diversity for sure. So. Nigel and and Terrence one day were sitting around and you know we're all trying to so we're all trying to survive this COVID conundrum right like we're just trying to figure you know like okay what what's happening and and then there's days you just you're just you know just accepting of it all and just you know going through and trying to do something as usual and and trying to put COVID in hindsight or you know, somewhere. <laughs> and I think it was one of those days um, for Nigel and Terrence and uh, Terrence had become a mentor of Nigel after Nigel had been racing for at least a good year or two. Um, we came upon Terrence at a race and we automatically, we like, it was like, we were the only two, well, pro- well, with the family, we were the only less than five Native Americans at that race. So automatically we saw each other and we connected and we said our hellos and instantly, you know, it it was like family. And he's from a different part of the reservation. He's on more on the uh, South end of the reservation of the Navajo reservation. Uh, So, you know, they, um, you know, he started to, to mentor Nigel and Terrence had been writing for years and years and years. And he's probably one of the first um, Navajo, probably mountain bikers, and also trail builders. And so 
it was really good to meet him at that time. And, and then uh, he started writing with Nigel as well. And so one day, you know, Terrence was out here and him and Nigel were out on the trails. And I, I knew very little about the trails that, um, that were being built. I don't ride, you know, and I certainly, I'm not riding with these guys because, you know, <laughs> um, I just not. So I didn't know too much about the trails that exist. Um, I didn't know, you know, the kind of work that Nigel had been putting in. And his were just very all, you know, hand cut and hand built and very raw, raw trails. And, and, and he just kind of seeing existing trails and then just kind of adding features here and there. And so, um, but then, you know, these guys started to come in and he started to show them like, oh yeah, like this is a trail I've got going, you know? Uh, And I think naturally people just started, you know, other writers just started to come and like really interested in what he's doing and wanting to help him. And, and so naturally this group starts coming together and, and they're out there writing. So this weekend it was just him and Terrence and while they were out there, they're building berms probably, and they decided they would race each other and time each other time and, and have their own little race. And uh, they came back here for lunch and we we're just outside sitting and chatting and they said, hey, we should have a race, you know. And so, you know, I I was excited to hear that. And I said, really, did you you know, because I had no idea what kind of trails he even had. And I'm familiar with enduro races from all the racing Nigel did. so. So I said, um, are you sure? Because do you even have stages? Like, because I know you need stages. <laughs> and and I had no idea how this even all worked and where all his trails were. And I was like, where is the transfer? Like, how, where do you come back up? So any case, he had it all figured out. You know, he had it all down. And he said, no, we have enough stages. There is a transfer. You just come back up Sandy Hill for every one of them. And it's a straight shot back up. You know, it's not some windy uphill climb. It's just one straight hill, you know, one straight up. From all the stages, you would, you know, end up at the bottom and come back up the same way, every one of them. And so I was really like, wow, okay. So so it was very like, it was my maybe June, July when he decided this. And we set this date for August, which is only like two months away. And we're like, okay, let's do it. And so we just kept it very simple. We got my brother, Adrian, involved, and he's not really a mountain biker, but he's he's athletic and he loves the outdoors. And he's uh, he he, um, you know, having been to all his racing, uh, you know, um, from from his running, he knew kind of logistics in terms of setting up a race. And so we got him involved and say, hey, um, we should do this race. And he's just naturally got in there and he was like, "Okay, what do we need? Or he he kind of knew already what we needed. And I didn't know he would make it even that much more professional. But right away, he was like, okay, we need to do registration. We need to do this. And so we said, well, it's kind of a bro race. So Nigel's just, you know, and Terrence have just informed a few people, like probably less than 10. And so that less than 10 on race day ended up being like 50 riders and just like people started just showing up, pulling up, and it was just so exciting. And we didn't really, you know, we only spent probably less than a month putting on and organizing. And it wasn't like intense organizing either. 
we already had like a shade structure outside and um, Marvin just kind of added two like those army canopies when you just prop up and they have like, you know, uh, the green, the mesh looking thing. He just propped that up. He's like, okay, here's additional shade. You know, unfortunately during that time, Marvin's um, during the week of Restoro, his uncle ended up passing his last remaining uncle uh, passed away. And um, the Saturday of the races when the, you know, the, the, the funeral arrangements were to take place. So, Marvin got us ready all the way up to before race day. And then he had to go and be with his family because he had, you know, to, to make all those arrangements as well. So he got us as ready as he could. And, and, you know, last minute trail, it, wait, I don't even know that they spent a lot of time on trails. It's just, you know, whatever was there was there. And uh, maybe just some quick lines for start and stop <laughs> stopping. <laughs> and then. So that's how that went. Um, But definitely kitchen was something that food is always, you know, uh, Marvin talked a lot about, you know, the bike being, uh, you know, something that is something that brings healing and that is medicine. And and so food is, is medicine, too. And kitchen is medicine. It's part of food is always. Uh, it's part of ceremony, any ceremony in our, our Navajo tribe, our Navajo culture. We still have a lot of ceremonies that we do, not as much as we used to, you know, over 100 years ago. But we still maintain quite a bit of, um, you know, ceremony and we still have medicine people. So the the food is really important. Um, and that was explained to me by my paternal grandfather who um, was a medicine person. And he explained to me one day that food is, is just really important part of anything. Anytime you bring people together, it's just really important. And then he just, you know, went on to say that, you know, it depends what, and, and him being a medicine person and being asked to do, you know, different ceremonies by different families all throughout the region. He come to realization that, you know, this was just something that just really is good for anybody to know. And it's good for me. It's a good reminder for me as, as I go through life. You know, he said, every family is, you know, what they have all varies. There are some homes I go to where I get just really a whole, you know, a, a whole kind of buffet. And I get all kinds of really, you know, good foods. And then he said, there's some ceremonies that I go to where they're trying to find food and, and maybe I get, you know, a cup of water and a piece of bread. But then, you know, the real important part of that, you know, was he said, but I never complain, he said, because the people are doing the best they can with what they have. And so he said, so, you know, it, it doesn't matter what they feed me. He said, it's still, you know, I just consume it and take it as medicine because that is truly what the family came up with in their best effort. So you never judge that. He said, you never judge. You know, when you go to ceremony, don't ever judge and say, wow, like that ceremony, I only got, you know, like they only provided coal sandwiches or whatever, you know, he said, never, never say that. Just, you know, accept what you have, accept what you get and, and enjoy it. 
you know, and, and thank the people for, for providing that to you. Uh, so that just kind of is, is a message that just has always stayed with me. It, it, very profound. Um, so, you know, anytime we come together, you know, food is a big piece. And so, of course, Resduro being planned, um, you know, naturally all the women got together and, and um, you know, we said, oh, so that was the big question. One of the biggest questions of Resduro, <laughs> it wasn't about anything else. It was like food, kitchen, what are we doing? What are we serving? And it was like, really like that was the big, I think that was the biggest planning piece to all of Resduro was like, okay, who's going to provide what? And we did. Our family came together really beautifully. And, you know, everybody said, well, I'm going to bring this, 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 that. You know, we have, um, I have sisters and, and moms and that grow food in their hoop house. So it was also during sort of around harvest time. Of course, hoop houses, you get foods a little sooner than our regular harvest in our outdoor cornfields, exposed cornfields. So, and then of course my mom and my aunt have sheep already. So we already have meat. And so it, you know, everything came together real beautifully. We said, uh, you know, everybody said, well, I'm going to bring this, I'm going to bring that. And my sister had, you know, she really needed to use all of her tray of microgreens, whatever. And so she brought that (laughs) and just, you know, people all brought, you know, one thing or another, and we just, you know, cooked and, and cooked for folks. So. The first Resduro, we didn't have a registration fee. It was it was free. We gave away, you know, we we um, gave away T-shirts to everybody who registered, and so that was it was just real, real, just you know, kind of bringing people together, and a lot, some a couple of my non-native friends, and and we met a couple of. Um, Bike moms, as I call them, um, we naturally came together over the course of time watching our kids race. And and then, you know, Nigel became friends with a lot of the writers. And and so a few of them came from Flagstaff and they came and they were just shocked and they were just like, it's free. Like, why? How come? You know, like (laughs) you're not charging like it's free. So. They kind of kept repeating that over and over. And and I was like, no, that that's just totally, it's okay. It's okay. And I said, this is our give back because um, you know, up to that point, we've been, I feel like we've been really blessed, you know, and what the bike and that in the first year or two that Nigel started racing, um, Scott introduced us to some folks from um the the New Yorker. And we did a podcast with them back in 2018, I believe. And from them, things kind of just kept moving along and, and, you know, being contacted by different folks. And so that's been, you know, we, we've had a good journey with the bike up to that, you know, up to that, the point of the race. And we said, no, this is, this is our give back. This is the way we, you know, so when I, you know, one of the women, I really had to explain to her that it's common in indigenous communities uh, for us to do giveaways. They're called giveaways. It can be really, you know, people sometimes give away really expensive things like, uh, you know, a horse is is expensive thing. People gift, gift horses to somebody they feel like, you know, has earned it or they want to honor them in some way. 
We give away really nice blankets, whether it be Pendleton or Star Quilt. Star Quilts are, you know, hand-sewn and real beautiful uh, blankets, mainly used by the, the Northern tribes. So, you know, people give away just a lot of really, you know, beautiful and meaningful things. And it's common. It's common. It's common for someone who you think doesn't have anything financially to gift, you know, something you really nice to others. And, and even if it's the only one pretty thing they have. So I had to really kind of spend some time and explain to her that, no, it's um, it's what we do because it's it's that, you know, we in our prayers somewhere we've asked for these good things, these gifts and we receive them, and um, now it's and and to maintain and and Marvin talked about that balance, um, maintaining that balance in life is is when you when you um, receive you you also give, and so you know it because if you receive and receive and receive you, that there's going to be an imbalance somewhere, and, and it's not going to be good for you. So, you know, to, to, to balance and even things out again, you, you give back, you know, and, and so I had to spend quite a bit of time with her and explain with her to her that it, that that, that's what we believe is, is, you know, what I've been able to give in terms of food, in terms of whatever it is I gave that is somewhere along the way, I'm going to be blessed back and returning again. And that's how it'll come. It's just, it's a faith, you know, it's a belief. And and I can't give you something solid in a document, uh, a return on investment kind of document, but I am just going to tell you, I believe that this is the way things work from my faith and from my experience. And I've seen my grandma do it. You know, I had a grandma who lived to be 102 years old, very healthy woman. And she's she's the reason that here in Hard Rock on Resduro that we, the family here maintains a large land base because her and my grandpa utilized the land. They were on the land and they used every corner of what they thought was their, here we call it customary use area because, you know, Native Navajo Reservation is held in federal trust by the federal government. So it's, you know, kind of being taken care of or they're the ones holding the <laughs> whatever it is. But, you know, it is our traditional homelands, though. You know, my grandma and grandpa maintained this large land base. Um, and I, I sometimes say it's like four by five miles. Um, that's kind of how what the size is. And they utilize probably every portion of that land. And we were nomadic people, um, so we're we're, we're used to moving around uh, historically and just, you know, using, having different camps like summer camp, winter camp, you know, um, depending on the season. So my mom, my grandma and grandpa were those kind of people and they planted corn, big fields and everything. So they utilized the land. My mom, my grandma was a walker. She, it was typical for her to walk probably 10, 15 miles a day. And after her sheep as well. So she didn't mind walking. She loved walking. And so I think, uh, you know, my, uh, Nigel must have been four years old when his, his great grandma passed away. He probably remembers very little of her. But I think, I often think that 
if she had seen what he's doing now with the land, like I, I think she would, I, I feel like she would be really proud and, and happy because, <laughs> you know, somebody is, is setting footprints on the land, which is what our elders say, um, set footprint on the land uh, because, uh, and I think that's just a good message for the whole world because we're just, we've, built homes to where we just get stuck in them all day. You know, like we want to do everything in our home and just sit inside all day. Or I do anyway. I'm guilty of that. I shouldn't say we, but I should say me. And so we don't, you know, really interact or I don't really interact with outdoors as much. And so I think, um, and even for my mom and my aunts and my dad, um, the matriarchs here are my mom, Lorraine and I have two other aunts, um, Edith and and Linda, and they're the three remaining um, matriarchs here. And and we're a matrilineal group here. And then my dad is kind of the lone elder man here. (laughs) And then uh, my aunt, um, she had a husband who passed away several years ago. And my other aunt just was single after her two kids, you know, for the rest of her life. So there aren't a lot of, you know, men folk out here. And so, you know, besides Marvin, Marvin's the other longest residing man here in, <laughs> in her neck of the woods. I, I think it takes some, I don't know, some special person to be out here for that long. <laughs> they say we're mean people, Chisha people, the Chiricahua our clan people, they say we're mean people. So, you know. <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to give a, a shout out to Marvin for being here for 30 years because he's surviving. It <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I, I know I'm going I'm covering a lot of things. But so going back to the kitchen, it was really important that we fed the people. And so going into year two of Resduro, you know, kitchen was a big one again. We're like, OK, we're going to build out the kitchen like <laughs> we're going to build it out. and. So, you know, two weeks before the event, all the my sisters and, you know, the grandmas all came up here and and my nieces and everybody took a shovel and, you know, started digging the holes for the poles. And we extended it out by like, I don't know, eight feet and, uh, you know, made it to where we actually set it up with all the burners. And we were trying to set up, you know, our refrigerator and freezer out there as well. But we didn't quite get to that. But, you know, again, food was the big piece, you know, food was, okay, what are we going to feed the people? And this year we knew that we would just get more spectators, more people. So we arranged for some food trucks, you know, local food trucks to come in. And and that kind of didn't really work out because we had, we, we got rainstorms, rain all the way up into Resduro. And it had me like... I had me so anxious and just so like, I was just freaking out every day watching the weather. Like, what is it going to do? What is it? And it was like raining. We've never had this, this much rain ever in, in years. And so to have this much rain almost every day was just, um, it was something else. And, and, and we were trying to, you know, work on trails. And so we were freaking out, but, um, but it just came together beautifully. Like it rained the night before the race, Friday's race. And Friday morning was a little bit 
a, a downcast kind of, it was, you know, looked like it was going to rain again and it was muddy out and it kind of lingered for a bit. I think it was just kind of giving us a little bit of a hard time freak out moment. And then like by 10 or 11, the sun just came out. And when the sun comes out, it just dries everything like pretty quick. And it did that. And we were just, and the, 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 the thing with that is they said them, the dirt was just the most amazing dirt ever. And so everybody just started naturally writing around 10 or 11 and wrote the whole thing. in. I thought we were going to have to do some major um, repair work out there because I was getting everybody ready to get out there with shovels. And, but they're like, nope, it's just right. Nigel is the one who said, you know what, I'm just going to write him in. And, and as soon as he went, all the little boys that were standing at our door at 6 a.m., they all go followed him and they were writing, 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 and they wrote it all in and it was beautiful. But anyway, kitchen, you know, going back to kitchen and, and um, you know, all the women, you know, pretty much come together and we had several different cooks coming through. Um, again, we shared our, you know, what foods we'd been growing. Uh, my mom and my sisters have been growing. My mom actually had my son butcher sheep like two days before. So we had meat for soup and just really, really good, you know, good and wholesome foods. We shared some of our um, traditional foods. Like a, I had a, a relative who brought in our earthen corn cake. So it's all made out of, you know, a, a yellow corn that we grow on, in our fields. Um, so really nicely baked cake. We had that. We have blue corn mush, which is blue corn, and and we put juniper ash in for. And juniper ash is naturally a calcium, so we we added that in there, and you know, drizzled it with fresh, I mean, you know, berries, and that was really good. We had mutton stew with local grown squashes and corn, and that was really good. So we had a variety of really good foods and just and fry bread, although fry bread is not a traditional food. It's our like that was the food that we used to to survive, you know, during our the time that we were put in concentration camps and we were given rations. You know, that was I always say I'm just I'm like super proud of being Navajo because I feel like if you give us shit, we will turn it into something like incredible. You give a shit and we will make you come back and buy it from us. That's what we do. Like, so fry bread, like that's one example, even though some people feel they're a little bit more passionate and about fry bread, but I'm, I'm like one of those that's like, this is the ration that we got and we had to figure out what to do with, because they, these foods were new, you know, new to the people at the time. You know, we didn't have bread traditionally, um, not it, our bread was the corn cakes, you know, that we cooked and that we grew from the fields. So we didn't have bread bread, but because we were given rations um, and flour and baking powder, um, it was like, OK, well, let's make, you know, like some to eat because people were starving. Right. OK, let's mix something and make something. And that was the that's the recipe for fry bread. And now. You go to an Indian event and you have you buy fry bread. People buy it for like, I don't know, eight dollars, you know, whatever. <laughs> I want to make this educational. So you talked about get being given rations in concentration camps. What was the time frame for that? Because this is I don't I'm completely new 
to this, and I'm sure other listeners are going to want to know when this was. Um, so Navajos, I believe, um, we were kind of the last. So did that manifest destiny, right? Really, kind of the that movement was from East Coast all the way towards the West. And, and so that movement in that movement, of course, all the Eastern, you know, the Eastern tribes were all the first ones that, you know, they were the first contacts. And so they started getting, um, you know, the genocide started to happen on that in a uh, way, I don't know how many years ahead. Uh, 14 is about 1491, 1492s, uh, when Columbus really came and, and started. I mean, there there have been other explorers before, but not anyone as um, as violent as Christopher Columbus, right? So that all began, and I have to remember my history here too. So, and and we weren't really taught a whole lot of it too, right? Maybe little bits and pieces. So, it just real brief mentions in our history books, but yeah. So in Navajo. I believe we signed our treaty treaty. We are one of several of treaty tribes, people who actually signed treaties with the US government that still exist today. 1868, I want to say, and I may be wrong on that, but just, you know, if anybody wants to do the research, 1868, 1869, 18. So roughly speaking, 150 years ago. 150 years ago. So Navajos, again, like I said, we're nomadic people. We were roaming all over our homelands here. And it was hard for the federal government, the the military to round us up because we were we knew the land. We knew where the hiding spots were. We knew where to we knew where to go and and just move about. And so it was hard for them. And we were. You know, it was typical to be warring with other tribes and then other tribes were not uh, very into wars. You know, they were just like, we just want to live peacefully, <laughs> like, go ahead and come steal a few things from us if you need to survive. But we're not trying to fight, you know, so I think we, you know, Navajos were one of those kind of probably uh, more known to be you know, war, warlike, you know? And so it was, you know, you went and raided other tribes and, you know, I, you took, I, you know, I don't know, horses and maybe crops and, and definitely you did, you took, I think sometimes you took women as well. So, but anyway, uh, we, we needed to be, I guess uh, we were not, you know, very, um, we weren't conforming people. So the U S government decides, okay, no, we, we need to get you guys settled in like this. The way you live is not, (laughs) you know, we're trying to explore here and, you know, claim lands here, but you all are in the way and, and we're trying to capture, we're trying to kill you all, but that's not working. So what do we do next? We're going to round you up and take you. So, and we're going to burn. So the first thing of the, the first thing they did was burn our food sources. So that's where they came in and, and um, Kit Carson, you know, burned all the peach fields and corn fields and, you know, took away the food because that's probably the fastest way that you're going to get people to succumb and surrender, right? 
uh, take away their food source. And so that's what happened. And that's how we finally, you know, they were able to get us. So they went around the whole res and, and rounded up Navajos and marched them all the way to Bosque Redondo. And the original plan, I think, was because the Apaches at that time were also being taken and and they went as far as Oklahoma from, you know, from that side of Arizona, from from the southern southeast, I believe, southeast Arizona, from the Apache lands. And so we're we're distant. We're we're close relatives to the Apache people. So uh, we, we have the same kind of uh, the linguistics that the language is very similar but we're on you know here in northeast arizona or, or yeah north northeast arizona primarily and so we got um shipped out to we were forced our people were forced to walk to bosque redondo new mexico and that's where they had a concentration uh, a camp there and that's where we were held for three to i think three to four years and just, you know, under prison conditions, but nobody had, you know, prison cells and warm beds and, you know, warm meals three times a day. It was um, outdoors and, and everything that you could imagine that happens at a prison happened there. But the Navajos were very resilient and I, they very much depended on their prayer they remained warrior-like, the men, you know, throughout that whole ordeal process. Of course, we had our medicinal people, our medicine people. Our, and so, you know, their prayers and however way they needed to do things to try to get us back to our homelands. Their whole goal, and they were very persistent about it, was we will not go anywhere else. You will not relocate us anywhere else other than our homelands. We are going back to our homelands. You're not going to place us in, you know, Oklahoma. I, I think the goal was to send us to Florida, maybe. And so they said, no, we're not going anywhere else. And and we're in and people were intent hell bent on surviving, no matter what the conditions were. I mean, there is certainly, you know, rape and everything, um, sexual assault, violence being inflicted, starving people. But the people remain steadfast. They're like, no, we're going home. We're we're gonna go home. And and they made a way to where they did come home three to four years later. And they were marched back. And even in that hardship through winter, you know, just you know, being forced to walk through, you know, snow and women with their babies and you know, uh elderly people, uh, they made it home. And then that's how they you know, where then and, and people came, went back to, I think what people did was they tried to go back to the area of the reservation where they, they maybe they were last at. And so people kind of spread themselves back out through um, their homelands, but right away flourished again, you know, so it was like right away people picked up again, you know, like their food and, and they're having sheep and having cows and horses and just, you know, just started all over again. And so, so my great, my, my grandma, my, my grand, I believe it would have been my grandma's grandma was, did go to Fort Sumner. She was marched there and came back. And my mom's, my aunt, my older aunt, 
um, had some stories of her and, and knew her just a, a bit. She was quite young, but she knew her grandma, um, her great grandma. And she said, um, yeah, one of the traumas and Marvin talked about traumas. One of the traumas she came back with was that food like she so she was old and she would be kind of she would just kind of go from relative to relatives home for care and to stay over with them for a short period. So she just kind of was sort of nomadic and people just kind of took her in. But they said she always had like a scarf, like something tied around her waist. And she just would every time they fed her, she would put food in it and food in it and food in it. And at some point, like they would be rotten, you know, but that was her trauma because of this, you know, how she starved. She she starved when she went and was, you know, in that concentration camp. So coming home, um, she hoarded food. And so she, you know, the grand the grandkids would from time to time be told, find a way to snatch that thing off her waist and get rid of the food. And so, you know, from time to time, they would have to sneak and and try to take that thing off their grandma and, you know, uh, get rid of food that was in her her little, um, you know, belt um, that she'd made. And so those are, you know, um, and, and for Native folks, you know, the, it, it's been, you know, one. And that's what we mean when we talk about historical trauma. It's, you know, um, the U.S., the federal government has certainly spent millions and billions of dollars trying to eradicate Native people. And in that process has inflicted a lot of trauma, which, you know, and today, you know, people say, well, how come, you know, there's a stereotype like, oh, these Natives are drunks, you know, why are they all out drinking still? And and what most people don't realize is that, you know, a lot of times federal policies come out and at least 150 years ago, they were more overt about their policy and that the, the, the whole goal was to get rid of you. But now there are policies now that are covert, you know, in ways that, you know, that policies are created and that, you know, that it's not going to serve us in, in a positive way that it'll be still detrimental in some way. And so we continue to deal with those things. And so people often say, well, why don't you just, you know, like get over it, you know? And it's like, (laughs) well, it'd be nice. Don't we, I mean, we all want that too, but how, how do we do that when the same pain is inflicted over and over and over and over again? And I, and I think we're, we're, we're making ways and, and, we're experiencing all the symptoms of the hundreds, hundred of years of trauma. You know, we have high rates of diabetes, as Marvin mentioned. We have high rates of alcohol substance abuse. We have high rates of suicide. We have high rates of chronic illness, chronic diseases. And when COVID came, we were no match because our immunodeficiency systems, we were already... Um, not doing very well. We already had high rates of chronic illnesses. And so when COVID came, it just, it, it literally just wiped out a lot of people. And uh, we, all the folks that had these chronic health conditions were the first to go. And so that's why we had a high number of deaths from COVID in our tribe specifically. 
I don't know. I didn't keep track of how other tribes did in, in terms, and I'm pretty sure it's similar, but our tribes, because we are so vast, we don't have all the resources. There are a lot of homes still that don't have the running water and that easy access to water um, because, you know, part of COVID was keeping clean, right? Um, to, to wash your hands. That was the big thing. And the first thing in Navajo was like, okay, like, but I don't have running water. I have to haul my water. And you want me to wash my hands every so often for 20 seconds or however many, you know, I don't remember how long they said that was an issue right away, you know? So we, you know, this, this COVID thing really did, you know, have, uh, you know, was very detrimental for our people and, and, and definitely, um, brought to light again, all the, the lack of infrastructure that we have here. So yeah, I, that's quite a bit of, <laughs> I was going to bring this full circle just through the fry bread <laughs> and, you know, and cause what really stuck out to me when you talked about fry bread was giving you shit and then making something out of it and selling it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to bring it back full circle with the bike in the, in the health and wellness and what that, you know, what that really is the future of that, you know, and what that will hopefully bring. And it's everybody is, you know, we all need to get out more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the bike is, I mean, to me, it's, it's everything for me. It's what, it's what, it's what always got me outside. I didn't, you know, the family I grew up in wasn't, I don't, I don't know if this is the right word, but wasn't super outdoorsy, mm-hmm. you know? And so the bike is, and it's been my outlet. Right. And so, you know, and I, I could, I just see that as such an important thing, you know, with you as well. And, and with Nigel right. and Marvin and everybody around you. Yeah. The, um, so I, I, you know, get to see these guys, like I said, I don't, I don't ride it. You know, I know how to ride a bike, but I, I'm just not riding with these guys on their trails because they're, they're a little bit nuts. And so, I mean, they're trying to come down things that, you know, like <laughs> that are not safe, <laughs> according to me. Um, <laughs> and so, like, the more unsafe it is, the better it is for them. Right. Uh, they're just like, oh, we're going to do this, you know, but. My seeing them, I, my, um, my career and my training has been in social work. So I've done years and years of community prevention work and, and, you know, just work around diabetes, substance abuse and suicide and domestic violence and all these things. And through all those years that I work within my communities, my local communities, I just saw that it, it was just women doing a lot of this work and bringing awareness to all these issues and trying to find solutions for them, you know, and trying to push a community wellness. And so it was, it, I seen in my, in that whole, you know, career in my career, I've just seen women at the forefront. Occasionally you might have a couple gentlemen that come in that, that will speak on things and maybe one or two in my life that actually really got out there and created something and, and moved things around wellness and talking about these things. So it, it's been very rare for me to see that men coming to the forefront and talking about wellness and, and, and you know, and showing people, you know, how, what that could be. So when I, Got into saw this biking is starting to take off. And 
So it was Nigel and his um, mentor, Vincent, who got together. They started writing together. And somewhere along the way, they came. Uh, Vincent came upon another Navajo guy and writing out in Winter Rock, which is the capital of our Navajo nation, um, Lorenzo. And so he said, hey, Lorenzo, hey, you know, they meet each other. Hey, we should start writing together sometimes, you know, so they start. And Lorenzo says, oh, I have an uncle that likes to write, too. May I'll go invite him. So these invites um, Frank. And then then it just starts growing. And then it's like, oh, no, we have. Oh, so and so, you know, is writing. And so it was like, next thing you know, you know, today, if I were to sponsor, say, we're going to do group writing wherever, easily 20, 20, 30 guys will show up. So that's how it started. And me seeing it, and I went along because Nigel was doing it. And then eventually Marvin got on because he loved it too. He saw the magic behind all this. And he's like, hey, I want to bite too. I like doing, you know, this is fun. And Nigel got, and, and then Marvin got involved. So, you know, like I say, I introduce myself. I say, I'm bike mom. I do everything else around bike except ride and, you know, except ride and build trails. <laughs> so I do everything else around bike. Just seeing them come together and I would, you know, see them on the group rides and I would watch them. And me being, you know, the social worker and, you know, the, the therapist person, like I'm seeing all this magic happening without ever having to ask somebody to come into a therapy room, you know, like, and, and you, you, you question those. And I've always known that I've always embraced alternative, unconventional ways of therapy. I, I never really cared for, you know, bring them into your office and make them talk, you know, kind of thing within one hour, you know. <laughs> so I at the scheduled time at a scheduled time. Yes. I make sure they come in at eight to nine and, and get some progress. Okay. But I saw the biking and I saw what they were doing and I saw them, you know, they would try a feature. They would try something. They would wait for each other and they would encourage one another and they would do their fist bump and yell and cheer for each other. And if somebody couldn't do it, they told them it's okay, dude, like not today. Maybe it's not today, but you, you'll you get there. You'll get there. It's okay. It's okay. You know, at the first few tries, they'll encourage them. Yeah, come on, you can do it. And then when the, they realize there's just too much hesitation, they just say, you know what? Yeah, it's okay. If it's not today, it's not today, but you know, it'll come, it'll come. It'll be, so there's no pressure. You know, there isn't that you've got to do this kind of thing. And I saw just so many other pieces to it and just how they encourage one another and they smile and laugh and just, you know, said really positive words to one another, encourage one another. And at the end of the day, just that energy, like I was like, there is not any, like they're doing therapy without knowing they're doing therapy. <laughs> That's like probably the best kind of therapy to have is not knowing that you're even actually doing it. Right. But I saw it through those lens and I was just so amazed with it. I just loved every piece of it. And I just, you know, I, I won't, I still today want to keep it going because now, so at the time Nigel was writing, he was the only young person. And I, for a long time, I tried to look for somebody his own age appeared that he could ride with. 
And, you know, I remember dropping him off at the top of the mountain and it was just him and uh, and something about me. He was like 14. And I was like, something about this isn't right. Like <laughs> I'm dropping him at the top of the mountain and that like by himself, something's not right about this. So I was trying desperately to look for somebody, his, his own peer. And I couldn't, but you know, the, the, the men that were coming were 30, you know, 30, 40 range. And that's who he spent, you know, the first probably two years with writing. He didn't mind at all, but it was through the racing that he got to connect with peers and because other kids, his age were writing. So that's where we got to, he got to interact with peers, but otherwise he didn't mind, you know, writing with all the, the older guys and but now I get to see younger kids writing. And now I get to see that mentorship happening from, you know, like I, some of the videos that I love are like, so Nigel's always one trying to do some crazy thing. So then they'll like, you know, they'll all be on a trail and they'll be like, he'll be like, I'm going to do this line. And then there was, you know, one of the more recent rides to see earlier this year is like, he's coming off this, this rock thing. and. So on this side, you know, is, is exposed and you could go over, but all the guys, including his dad, his dad and, and, and Vincent and another one, um, I don't remember who it was three of the guys all kind of, cause the first try he almost went over that way. So, but he saved himself. And so the guys decide, well, we're going to all stand here and we're going to catch you if you should go over. And so the guys all decide, and then you just hear them in the video saying, okay, Nigel, you got this we're here for you. You got this, you know, and that just really for any young native youth, because there's just been so much suffering. There's just been so much, you know, so much dysfunctions um, within our communities that even for native youth to have that support of a positive male role model is tremendous. That is gold. That that is, you know, that's all I need to see and to witness to say we are we're moving and, and not this isn't just physical, you know, health. This is mental, emotional. It's, you know, like the kid, the boys, the young boys love it because they get all the support from these older people. They might not have father figures in the home. They may be, you know, a lot of them are being raised by single moms and, and maybe dad is in the home, but maybe not the most positive role model. But then when they get to these bike things, you know, all the, the guys are there and they're serving as uncles or in our, we still have clan systems. Marvin introduces clan. So, and what we greet each other through that way with, through the clan system, where they're either going to be like Vincent is, is my grandpa because his, his clan is system is that he is my grandpa. So naturally that would be Nigel's grandpa. So either the, your, their grandpas or um, their brothers or their uncles or their nephews. So, so we, we, um, you know, we, we, we acknowledge each other like that. And we, we say, you know, my brother, you know, and so that's how it's been. And when these guys get together from young to old, they're all encouraging one another and, and just, you know, the dad's all encouraging, you know, the one son and it's just beautiful, you know, and all of my career and all of my life in, you know, mental health and counseling services, I've never seen that much progress and that much um, movement around 
health and wellness. And in biking, it just happens just naturally. It's a, it's it's there, and and people do it, and they experience all that without knowing that that's what is happening, right? All they know is they have a good time at the end, and they feel so much better, and they feel good. And I see that happening for a lot of the the men and. Being in mental behavioral health, and probably this might be the case in all of U.S., no matter where, it's just hard to get men to come in to get help. And they're not, you know, they don't, you know, they don't actively go say, oh, I'm going to counseling service today, you know, or I'm going to behavioral health and check in today. (laughs) It's not someplace they're not, you know, there is a lot of activities and a lot of this relief is sought through physical activity. And that's why physical activity is really important. So this is kind of where all the magic happens. And I love seeing it. And I come in support with food always. Like if it's not Resdera Kitchen, I'm lugging around. I either have, you know, ice chest full of drinks or just snacks, you know, and I just get out. We just get out there and like, all right, who needs to eat? You know, I'm just concerned about, you know, the food. And so that. You know, I, I think uh, as Native people, I'm seeing this and, you know, we we did a presentation at uh, one of the bike companies um, to industry folks and and it was, you know, a lot of non-Native folks and they were almost ashamed to say, well, well I don't mean to get philosophical about this, but I'm like, but it is, it can be, you can get ph- philosophical around the bike. It's okay. Like there's, why are you separating these things? Like, like that doesn't belong here. And I think, and that's where um, I, I feel like Marvin really brings in, you know, the wheel because the wheel in any indigenous culture is sacred and it, there's a lot of meaning to it. There's just multiple, there's just, you could just talk about the wheel for days on end. It just it represents so many things. And, you know, and there's they call it medicine wheel as well. And so to us, the bike is it's just not some, you know, object. It, it also has components, it has pieces on there that are that are significant and mean has a lot of meaning. And so you start to see it as a, you know, a really it's it's a medicinal it, it is healing is, is what you start to see it as and then people see that as philosophical then they're like they get maybe a little uncomfortable with that like ooh i i can't get to too touchy feely about this but i'm like but you can <laughs> and it's okay yeah get touchy feely about it yeah get touchy feely about your bike that's okay just do it you know like any case i'm i'm really happy that we we this the bike allows us to have these conversations because I think you know this is where it brings starts to bring people together, and this is where you get to invite us and and talk about you know um, indigenous people's Navajo perspective, which is just good information for anybody that wants to hear it and and learn about it. Obviously, I grew up in a in a in a lot different arena, let's call it. You know, I'm, I live in Wisconsin. I live in La Crosse, named after a Native American sport, right? But I grew up in a not so different way in the fact that, you know, I didn't have a father figure at all. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I didn't, I knew who my father was. He was living in San Diego when I was living in La Crosse, mm-hmm. but I was raised by my grandmother, my mother, my great grandmother, my great aunt, mm-hmm. you know, and in the bike to me was that outlet, mm-hmm. you know? And when I started mountain biking, it was like 1990, 1991. So a long time ago <laughs> and there was, I didn't really have anyone to bike with either. So I would go mount, the first mountain bike race I went to, I went to the bike shop on a Sunday morning. I was in eighth grade. So young, right. <laughs> and hopped in a car with a bunch of college students to go to a mountain bike race. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's different, but in a, in a way somewhat similar. And I'll be honest, it was my therapy it, and it still is my therapy to this day. Mm. And I have gone to therapists for different issues that I've had to work through, but I always go back to the bike. And that's why, I mean, that's a lot of the reason why I started this podcast because the trails are so important to, as you can't, you don't have mountain biking without trails, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's how you connect with the land. Mm-hmm. And, and so it is super important to me and that's, you know, and I want to be able to spread the, the message, the, especially the message that you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, to more people, cause it is so important. Right. So I, I really appreciate the fact that you went as deep as you did mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with that. And, so, and I appreciate that. You, you talk about traveling to different places and dropping Nigel off on the top of a mountain. And you're probably, as a mother, you're like, when's he going to be on, down to the bottom? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Thinking about his safety, right? Yep. <laughs> you know, and so having other people there too is, is super important, but I, that's awesome. And the cat is out of the bag with the Resduro. I mean, you've kind of, it's, it's fully out in the open in terms of being broadcast to the masses in terms of, you know, it was You've had, you had it on specialized, brought it out as, as their soil searching, you know, and it's been in some magazines now. And obviously you need to keep it in check in terms of growth because there, you don't want to, you don't want it to go out of balance. You don't want it to get super huge. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you have too many people on your land, Mm -hmm. you know, showing up at the same time. So what do you, you know, kind of, what do you see the future of that and how do you keep that in check? Yeah, those are really good questions. And we definitely will. As a matter of fact, this Sunday, um, we as a family decided we would come back. We we haven't officially had a debrief since Resduro. And so our family will come together on Sunday and we will do a debrief and we will talk about Resduro and where we go moving forward. I know that we already said that there is a Resduro 2023 I think my brother, and this would be interesting. And, you know, my brother would have been an added bonus to talk to because, you know, he, he represents sort of that younger generation of uh, native young adults who really are speaking out on a lot of these things. So this is kind of the, the generation he represents that generation that's just really talking about like appropriations and what that even means and being vocal about it, you know, to just being able to say it without, you know, feeling like, like they're, they're really vocal is what I would say. And more vocal, probably I feel like than me sometimes. And even though people think I'm vocal, but this younger generation of native people are, are really like there was a time in our history and native history in the seventies where we had the American Indian movement. And that's the same time as like the black Panthers and and Martin Luther King and their movements were going. And so these were native youth that were coming out and speaking out and holding real 
like they were occupying federal buildings and they were like, no, the, our treatment, your treatment of us has to stop like your mistreatment. So they were very vocal, but they did it in a real physical, aggressive manner. And they did it through, you know, these, these um, their means were different. And so now we have also now another generation of youth that's, I feel like they're kind of rising back up and really speaking on these things too. Um, and, and really putting, you know, creating language for it and putting a name on things and, you know, really making it known. So his, his vision, so he was, he continued as the organizer this year. He definitely, he brought in the branding piece. Um, that was all him. And now after all the he- feedback from all the people that we've talked to, like they are just, you know, livid and just over the moon about the branding. Like, wow, you guys really killed it with that branding and the logo and, you know, the messaging and everything else. Um, so that was all him. So his thing was, He's very, he's cautious of, of, you know, what we provide here at Resduro. Marvin and I, you know, of our, uh, are open and free to sharing culture. We're open and free to like, we want to do this. We want to set up the teepees so that people can stay in them. Although people, uh, although the teepee isn't like the, the teepee that we're talking about, it is more synonymous and maybe introduced by more than Northern tribes, but historically our Navajo stories, we did have a teepee, but it doesn't look like the Northern teepee that we have, but we did, we do have a teepee. So like we have those and we're like, we can share that with the people. And the first year we, uh, we did sweat lodges. And so we shared that with the people, but my brother came back in when it was like, hold up, like you all are selling our culture. <laughs> point and you need to stop the last thing we need is somebody to come from i don't know florida and be like i went to marvin james took me to sweat lodge and and now i'm a shaman and i he said i could do sweat lodges and now you pay 300 me 300 dollars and i'm gonna run this he's like that's the last thing we need and i'm like okay that's a little bit extra but but, you know, I'm like, but I feel good about the people that come. Like, I feel like they're good people, you know, and as long as you give them, you know, the rules and expectations, you know, that they will follow. So I have, the, again, that faith and belief that that's the way it'll work. It'll take care of itself, but not so much him. He's real careful. Like, OK, we got to be careful. Like some things he's like, no, we will not do that. So and then Marvin just like, oh, you know, and. So anyway, but it's good for our family to, because we have to, we all are caretakers. We all are caretakers of this land base. It's not all about me and Marvin and Nigel. We got to include the grandmas in on this. We got to include all the, you know, my sisters and my brothers and nephews and nieces, how, what, you know, they feel about this. And, and as far as I know, they all loved it. They all love it and they they want, I'm pretty sure they want it to continue to go. You know, the growth piece is something that we're moving into. And I'm just, I'm really excited to share that I learned today that um, North Face, actually, there's somebody from North Face that recommended us to get a grant. 
And that is just such perfect timing right now because it allows us to do that strategic planning. It allows us to do that, you know, like lay out a design, the master plan. What do we want out of this and, and going forward? How, how what is this Resduro site? What is this? Like Marvin mentioned, it, it could be youth development. You know, it could be open for three months out of the year um, because we we use the lamb. My mom and dad and my aunts use it for their sheep and they're out there, you know, every day, day in, day out. My mom and dad are out there herding sheep. So we just have to keep all those things in consideration. My mom and dad love the grandmas love seeing people here. They were just chatty Kathy's all day long. And we were just like, you guys need your own, like your own um, meet and greet tent where you just talk to people and get your pictures taken and whatever else, like you guys need your own tent. So this grant will allow us to do that. We're going to get to decide, you know, all the, what we get to do in this next year and, and the years after and how we're going to set the site up. And I, I think there's a lot of opportunities here, you know, just listening in at Trail Labs, definitely their, their goal. And, and, I, and I think there's nothing wrong with their goal. There's, there's goals of, you know, of attracting thousands of people and making uh, millions of dollars in revenue, you know, and having and growing your community like that, which, which is all great. But, you know, like we would like some of that, too. But like you said, in proportions, in, in, in limits, we have limits and we have proportions. And, you know, what does that look like? So it definitely for me and we have two small businesses here in our community. It's just one of the hardest things to ever do here in a rural community. It's just very difficult. So I'm trying to promote entrepreneurship. I know that we can do things and just looking beyond my, my family and, and our homestead here and, and our bigger family, what can this do for the, this bigger community that we live in, in terms of economic development? You know, what can we, can we create something so that, you know, others can benefit from this bike event, you know, and, and biking here? Those are my thoughts. And we will get to explore more on Sunday as our family comes together and we talk about this. And so I'm excited to hear what they have to say. And it's, um, you know, it, even though it's a lot of work and a lot of it is volunteer based in terms of our family, I think they're just gaining a lot of skills from it too. And the, the rewards and what I'm seeing, the impact that it's having is tremendous. So I think after last year's race and the kids saw Nigel and what he had done with his trails, a lot of youth went back to their own backyards and their communities and started building. Like there now you see other kids. Now we get to see, you know, on Instagram, you know, what kids in Navajo, New Mexico are doing, what kids in Nazlini are doing. Like I'm getting to see, like they're all getting outside with their little shovels and, you know, building their own little trails and jumps and, and exploring their own backyards. And, and if anything with Navajo, we may be just, people tend to think, even our own people think that we have nothing out here, but we have a land base the size of West Virginia, that it's just land. We have land. (laughs) 
which is what you need with trail building, right? I'm not saying to build trails all over, but you could, our nation could be really strategic again and going back and, and there are definitely um, areas on the Navajo nation where they could really build it like a economic opportunity. Like it could be, there's places here that could be like Sedona, that could be like Moab, beautiful, beautiful places and more mountains and more elevation. We're dealing with just a tiny bit of an elevation, but Nigel was able to get out there and find just real technical features and like, you know, natural features that create drops and all these really interesting things out there. I mean, I finally walked a couple of these uh, trails and I was just blown away. And then also just to see like Nigel's first year of trails and what that looked like. And after Brandon came in and, and this time we actually brought in an excavator and what that was able to do. And I'm not going to say one is better than the other, but just, and oh my God, the change is, is amazing. I think Nigel feels a little sad that his little trails are now just these, you know, bigger trails and, and really nicely, really nicely done up and professionally done up. People were just like, wow, we were for a hot second, thought we were at some bike park, you know, and that's what the trails were this year. Just major upgrade on all levels and even timing. I was so adamant about a professional timing system. And one group of funders, you know, really interested in funding this um, event were like, are you sure you want professional timing? Because you're like, you're a homegrown race and kind of professional timing kind of you know, gives it a little different feel. And I'm like, no, like I, some reason I want this professional timing system. Like I want to, the racer to come and get a receipt at the end of the run and see and so she was still having a hard time understanding like why this 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 home like grassroots race was needing this fancy timing and I'm and and the only thing I could say to her to help her understand was why can't Indians have nice things like we just want this really cool like you end up in hard rock way deep res and then there's this professional timing <laughs> And I'm like, can you see that for me? She's like, all right, let's do it. And, and through um, Brandon and Candace, I don't know that we met Dustin Slaughter when we were in Bentonville, but um, they connected us to Dustin and they're like, get Dustin. And Dustin like said he could do it. And I was blown away. I was like, oh my God. He came, set up his shop. Like it looks so freaking amazing. I that was. Of all of Resduro, that was like my big dream, my big ask, and I got it. And I, I was just so happy about that. <laughs> it might not be a big deal to other people, but for me, that was like the ultimate Christmas wish that I got. And I just loved it. <laughs> well, you're, you're definitely on the right track. And there's a, a couple things that I want to point out. One is, and we're going to get to timing because that's a, that's a big thing. But the intentional growth and like having it, like, I think there is a lot of value in limiting and being really thoughtful on how you do grow. Because I, in the years that I've been involved with mountain biking, I've seen events get really, really, really huge, really fast. And you, ha and you have the marketing behind it right now for it to go like that. And I think you need to really be careful with that. You know, I, I think that's a really, 
you know, there's a, there's a race, um, up in the, up in the upper peninsula in Michigan that I have gone to a lot of times and it sells out fast. They allow, they, they, they do really good branding. Let's say it's actually uh, modeled after a native American name. It's called the Margie Gessick, which was a really important native American in that region that helped find, uh, iron mining, you know, and iron mining was huge. But anyhow, this race, it, the race for the race is actually harder to, it's harder to get into the race than it is to do. And the race is difficult. It's a 112 mile race. It's a really difficult race. It's billed as being the toughest race in the, in at, at, definitely in the upper Midwest. It sells out in under a minute, over 600 people. It's so it pretty much breaks the website. Wow. You know? And so like, and there's a lot of they do a lot of tongue in cheek in terms of like the marketing behind getting into the race and, and, and it being hard and it's even harder to get into it, you know? And so like, so that's, you know, so you really want to be, you, you don't want, I don't think you want, well, you might want to get to that level in terms of like, they're really like thousands of people would show up if they let them, Mm -hmm. you know, and you don't want that. You don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So being super intentional, you know, so I really like the fact that you're, you're being thoughtful, you're, you know, as, cause you just, you don't want your lands to get overrun and it to become something bigger than what you intended it to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I'm glad that you're, you know, you're having the debrief and that you're going to be intentional with that. And you're going to actually, you know, work at how do we model this properly? And in the youth part of it is also super huge. So that's another big parallel with that Margie Gessick event, because that event grew out of what they call 906 adventure, which is 906 adventure is just that it's youth development through, through mountain biking. Like that is their number one goal is youth development. Mm-hmm. And it's the events that came out of it to kind of help, help support the youth initiative in terms of funding. Okay. Timing. The most important part of any race is timing. So I was super happy that you said like, it's a, even though like bringing a professional timing system in that, that relieves so much stress from people to have professional, even if it's 30 people, like to know that it's going to be timed properly because it's not a race without times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I'm glad that you put a lot of precedent on that, you know? And so it's like, well, do we want to keep it grassroots? Yeah. But you can only do, do so much with a stopwatch. <laughs> <laughs> And to have a person or a, or a crew of people that like, that's their focus and that's their goal. And you can focus on say the, the, the res kitchen or whatever else it is. Right. And let them do that, their thing. Right. That is, that is also super important. And so big or little, that's a, it's good to let those professionals take that on. So it can be professional, big or small. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, that was, I think a piece that I wasn't very familiar with. I just know I needed a timing system, but I hadn't really didn't know that like all the other pieces that the 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 company could do. And so I think we're just trying to like, well, one, I didn't know all the other things they could do, but I was just kind of hanging on. Like all I thought they were doing was timing. But when Dustin came and Dustin was really a godsend as well, because um he showed up like uh, on a Thursday and He, you know, I was just freaking out about the weather, like I said, and, and I started to talk to Dustin about it. And Dustin said to me, he said, Jermaine, it's called Enduro weather. And he said, "Uh, you absolutely have no control of it and it will do what it needs to do. 
and people will race in the mud. <laughs> he, so he was finally one who just was like, let it go. Like you're, you're causing yourself, you know, high blood pressure and heartache over something you have no control over. Just let it go. So he really calmed my nerves and just kind of put that whole weather watching fiasco to rest for me. Like after we talked, I just stopped looking at the weather and I was like, okay, this, it'll just do what it needs to do. Um, so he was just yeah, absolutely amazing in that way where he, he really calmed our nerves. And then, you know, too, then he came in and he said, well, Jermaine, th- these are other things I do. We go out there and we um, also um, identify the, the, the race course and, and, and put up the course tapes and do this and that and that and these pieces. And then we didn't really think we needed that big backdrop piece, um, the one that holds up the banner. We thought we were going to create, make one, homemade one, which we just in the end didn't have time for because we were creating, making showers and whatever else. Like we were going out with everything else. But he had the piece already. He came in with it. He just set it aside over there. And like he wasn't all like pushy about it. He just said, just letting you know, I have all these things. And then at some point, somebody was like, because everybody's running around like chickens, you know, trying to do last minute, you know, with setting things up. And then he he was somebody then's like, hey, let's put this up and put the banner on. And somebody took it upon themselves and, you know, constructed the metal piece and stuck the banner on, which just made it even that more professional and beautiful. And I, I just, you know, really, he was, he wasn't real, you know, pushy about all the other things he could do, but he just was kind of just beautifully filling in wherever we were lacking. And uh, that was all the way through the race. And the part that I loved the most was, you know, so like he was set up right here in front of the house and you know, he had all his uh, race chips. He had his beautiful van, of course, a very professional van, his canopies that had slaughter trails, his nice table coverings that were all uniform <laughs> and match. And he had his computer setups and he had his, you know, timing chips in a box and very, very professional and then so I loved it when he called for all the racers to come and he gave them instructions on, 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 you know, how to be around the, you know, start gates and everybody had their little chip wrist things. And that was just so awesome to see. And then at the end of the race, the most beautiful scene to me was like, especially because all the young folks are like, they're really in like, right. They want to know what their time was. They want to know. And the fact that as soon as they did their last stage, they came in and got a receipt. And then they all like all the young writers, like the, the, the youth groms just came together and they were checking each other's receipts. Like they were like, how many more seconds? And it was just super important to have that because there's some races that were just like the timing was down to the hundredth of a second. Yes. So that's why we, I probably didn't want the three, two, one stopwatch go thing because they were able to see the receipts and they were able to see, oh my God, I was just like, just this much behind you. 
you know, like they were able to compare and see where they were at in their race results. And so that was amazing. Well, one of the most complicated formats to time in racing is, is Enduro. Yes. You know, it's like a cross country race. Everybody leaves at the same time and then they come, they all come across the line one by one, or maybe there's a sprint finish, but Enduro, you have different stages, timing set up in different places. And then to have, and then ideally you have multiple stages being timed timed at the same time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so to, to coordinate that, like that's, it is by far the most complicated, I guess the most complicated discipline of, of mountain bike racing to time, you know? Yeah. And, and Dustin's timing just handled it beautifully. We talked to another timing company, even though they were also professional setup, their process seemed to be complicated. Like I was just thinking, why is your process seem more complicated? And you're like, you, you do big races and, but Dustin, I know he does some decent sized races, but his stuff is, is pretty straightforward. So then I was like, no, we, we don't need complicated. We just need you to do what you think you can do. And, you know, and then Dustin at the end of debriefing, he just said, you know, I'd love to come back out, except next year I can come out like way few days early and we can help set up. Yeah. Now I seen it and I know I, what he can do. And I'm just like, I mean, I didn't doubt him before. I just didn't know that he had just so much more um, resources and and so much more skills that I, I'm like, I could hand over half of the race to you. And all I have to do worry about is the kitchen. Like, that's it. Like I could hand over half of the race to you. And now I I come away with that. And so he's committed to coming back, you know, in 2023. And this time he wants to come way a few days early. So I'm super happy about that. And I've done one of his races. I haven't, I don't, it's, it's a little bit of a haul for me to go to Arkansas, but I did do one of his Southern Enduro tour races. It was at, is that the great passion play where the giant Jesus is in, <laughs> in Eureka Springs, mm-hmm. which is a whole different trip in itself Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to think you're in the middle of Arkansas and that thing's there. Yeah. You know, people don't believe you <laughs> well, we until they see ourselves it. too. Um, yeah. And you, it, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. But he, he said, so uh, we learned um, while he was here that he did buy, and that was actually one of, when we were in Arkansas for the month, that was Nigel's favorite place. The, the, like the Leatherwood uh, area. Oh, Lake Leatherwood. That yeah. was like his go-to place. Like everything else was cool to him. He's like, yeah, that's all nice. And they're cute trails, but Leatherwood is, is where it's at. Yeah. Leatherwood and, and uh great passion play. Yes. Passion plate. Those were his two favorite spots. But so what we learned is just Dustin purchased like a, a hotel um, thing at one of those. I, I think it's Leatherwood site. Um, so he's running that thing now, which we're really excited. And we'll be going to Arkansas here in two weeks, the end of the month. And we hope to stop in and check that out and, and get to ride Leatherwood again. What do you, how do we want to close this one? I would like to get Nigel on at some point. So we should maybe okay. schedule another, another, uh, one of these with just Nigel and we can talk about his racing and his perspective and where he's been able to travel to and kind of how that's opened his eyes, you know, cause it's, I think that's a really good perspective as well. Yeah. So Nigel, well, now he's 18 years old and I think 
you know, just being his mom and seeing him go through all of this. So right now we just refer to him as the visionary of Res Duro um, <laughs> because <laughs> he was just like, he was just, you know, 17 year old kid who wanted just to have a race and using his trails. And I don't think he, he still to this day doesn't think it was such a big deal. You know, like he's just like, it was just a race. And I just was out there building trails, you know? And so I, I think he, um, you know, to him, it was not a big deal. He doesn't still, I think, fully comprehend kind of what this started. Probably he will reflect on it in a few years from now and just say, wow, wow, oh my God. So I just feel like, you know, his dad and I were talking about it. And um, now he's, he, he'll just race here and there, but he's, he's not racing as hard and and writing as hard as he used he did when he was probably around 14 15 16 because he's the one who found enduro he um participated in the sihison ride that went from one end of the reservation to the capital of the nation and that was a suicide awareness ride bicycle ride it was a 3 to 400 mile ride in the summer and it's hot. It gets hot out here. It's like a hundred plus out here in the summer. A friend of his wanted him to ride for a day. And so he just said, you know, it was summer. He wasn't doing a whole lot. And he's like, okay, sure. And he didn't, you know, I don't remember. He might've borrowed a bike that time. So we went and went to the, to the kickoff to the event. Cause the one hosting it was a, a good friend of mine, Claudia. And she was, putting on this ride and we got out there and he did his first day. And I thought it was just a one day thing, you know? And so I went back at the end of the day and I said, okay, are you ready? You know, you ready to go home? You're done. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to go tomorrow again. I was like, um, okay, sure. So, you know, just kind of got him ready to do day two. And, and then I came home, he did day two and I went back at the, to their in stop, their rest point for the night and checked on him again. Okay. Are you ready to go home? He's like, Oh no, no, I'm going to keep going. And then, so every day was like that. And every day was, you know, I would check on him at the end of the day. And, um, there was one point he rode like 60 miles, I think on asphalt and you know, it, that thing gets hot. Um, and it was like hundred plus and, um, he rode it. And, and so every day was like that. There was some real hard, hard places to ride. But he kept going. He was like 13 at the time. And the very uh, last part of the leg of the race is where I, you know, caught up with him. I caught up with him at the end of the day. And um, I brought um, my niece had just had a baby like a month before and she had a little one. And I had them with me and we showed up at, and he was he was exhausted. He was done. He was at the very end of the group, even though he doesn't like me to tell the story like this, but he was at the end of the group. He was barely hanging in there. He's tired. He's uh, he had long hair at the time. He had really long hair. Um, hair is a hot mess, um, you know, and just probably hadn't had good sleep and hadn't had any home cooked meals, <laughs> hadn't been in his bed for several days now. And he had a brutal day, another brutal day of writing and was at the end of the group. And 
we we caught up to them while they were riding on the dirt road and and he saw us and he was just so excited he just was so happy to see us and the baby his little you know in our clan system it's his little mother he saw his little mother and he just was so excited and so happy like in that moment he had that energy and he got back to the front of the group and so what you know in these in these rides what happens is like as each day progresses and as you get to the end point you get more riders coming in and of course they're fresh and of course they're you know um but he was the only one one of the few he was the only youth that had started from the get go and been riding every day and so he was done by then and i think emotionally he was he was you know like done too and you know spent the evening with him and he was just like I want to go home. I want to go home. I'm done. And this was like the day before the last, the last leg of the ride was less than 20 miles. It was all going to be downhill on paved road. And so, you know, it, we, this was a really good, um, I think life teaching moment for me to him to say, you've done something really incredible. This is like, you are the only kid that has done this whole three, 400 mile ride. And this one anyway, in this, in this summer, you know, this, this ride, um, you're almost done. You're at the very end. And I, you know, my thing to him was if you cut yourself off now, there, there's really not, there's not anything physically wrong with you that you can't finish the race or the ride. Let me take you home. Let's get you a nice meal. Let's get you showered. Let's get you into your bed. And tomorrow morning, we will, we will literally just carry you into the car. You can sleep because it was like two and a half, about two hours away from home that where they were at. And I said, we'll drive you back here. You come back here in the morning and then you finish off and we'll all be there. And I said, because there's a lot of going to be a lot of these moments in your life. If you could think about it, that you start something that it's important, you finish it. You've got to finish this and, and we're going to help you and, and we're going to make it happen. We're all supporting you. Your little mom will, you know, um, come and, and see you at the end of tomorrow because, you know, like she's here supporting you and, and you've got a lot of support. You can do this. So he agreed. He said, okay, all right. He probably was emotional. So we brought him home, did all those things. In the morning, I had um, um, my, my, who I call my son-in-law, um, showed, uh, came like at five, four or five in the morning and we packed everything and, and then got Nigel in and took him out to the, um, to the start, back to the, you know, where the group was at. And that morning, from what I understand, they had like a nice talking circle and they talked, everybody had a chance to talk about, you know, their, what they were feeling and, and how things were going for them. And I, apparently he expressed some really emotional things, you know, where, and it, it sounds to me like the whole group up to that point have been just kind of bottling up because you know, those rides are intense. The, the day ride is intense. It's a lot of suffering. 
Um, <laughs> it's a lot of suffering. It's a lot of just getting beat up out there. It's hot. It's it's bumpy. The rides are brutal, you know, and uphills and, you know, climbs and sandy things and just all kinds of, you know, things. It could be windy. It could be raining and all you're experiencing all the weather conditions. But it, apparently he 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 expressed some words that allow people to open up and share freely. And 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 from what I heard, you know, everybody shed a tear and they all cried. Um, because it was the last day and they were finishing something really important and just, you know, just dealing with suicide in general, just, just doing something around that. And in our, in our culture, in our stories, suicide was an actual, you know, death as an actual living thing at the time that kind of these rules were being put in place on how we would live. And death was one of those. There are seven, seven things that ask to remain here on this earth among the people. And they said, we want to remain here, even though we're not positive things. We want to remain here because we will give some we will we will be that thing that gives people like reason to 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 exist and to really think about where they're at and what they're doing. And death was one of them. They And so death and poverty and lice and greed and, you know, these three hunger and jealousy. And there's one more. They all were like, no, we, we don't get rid of us. Don't get rid of us. We want to remain on the earth. We want to be here among the people because we serve a purpose, you know? And so they were allowed to stay, you know? So, so when we talk about those things, it, it can be really heavy. And, and so it is a living thing. Death is a living thing that, that, that we've got to live with. And, and even more so in our culture, natural death isn't such a bad thing because like, so you die of old age, you know, and that's a beautiful thing. You've completed, like Marvin said, you've completed that circle of life. Um, you've, you, we were, we were, our, instructions for our Diné people. When I say Diné is our, our, the name we call ourselves. Navajo is what we were called by, you know, those giving us a name. But Diné people, we were given 102 years to live on this earth. They said we could live 102 years. And so that's everyone's goal, you know, to live to be 102. So to, to if you fulfill that time frame and you reach old age, no matter what old, but as long as, you know, in that old age category, you've completed the circle. And so, you know, death is, is, is what happens and, and you completed that life journey. So that isn't so bad in itself, but it's, you know, things like suicide and things like homicide and those kind of things are are kind of you know they they weigh heavy on people and and they're they're not you know so good uh, such good things so those are heavy energies that we have to deal with and let alone letting young people it facing having young people face those kind of things so it can be heavy and so so the ride itself is. I think that one also needs a lot of, you know, that ride still continues to happen during the summer and it's called the Sea Hessen ride. 
I believe Giant did a nice video on that. I think Giant Live is is funding a, a lot of their efforts. Very, very, very important because that was definitely Nigel's entryway into biking. And on his own is where he looked up like you got yourself to the bike shop at, at as an eighth grader. <laughs> he also did the same thing. He started you know, he said he his story to me is YouTube is how he found enduro mountain biking. I remember he came to me and said, I need a mountain bike. And um, I was like, OK, let's go to Walmart. And I was like, no, we're going to a bike shop. And I wasn't sure about bike shops. I was like, OK, there's bike shops. Yes, there's bike shops. There are other bikes besides Walmart bikes. Yes, there are other bikes. <laughs> So he took me and I, his first bike was like a Kona, it was a used one. It wasn't a full suspension, but it was like 400 bucks. And I was like, oh my God, 400 bucks. So I, was, I thought I was breaking the bank with 400. And then uh, he wrote that for a bit. And then after a while, he's like, the, the kind of writing I want to do, I need a full suspension bike. So back to the bike shop again. And this time was like $2,500. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But, it, you know, that was the start of things. Uh, <laughs> since then, he's, he's broke a frame and um, uh, whatever else, you know. So, and those are the bikes Marvin's talking about that we've been able to fix them up and, and gift them to others. Um, and so that was the beginning of things and in his own, you know, and then him getting out on the trails on his own. And oh, and then he said, I want to race. I want to race enduro. Um, his dad and I didn't really know what that was. Um, I didn't know what enduro racing was. Um, so naturally, we just went along and said, OK, well, well where, where do we go? What do we do? And so um, he signed, you know, he told us this is the race. I want to go to this, 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 that race. And I was like, oh, okay. And so we just went along, paid the registration fee, and ended up at those places. And it was a very, it was the only native youth in in these events. Um, but um, he was, I think, as a as a young person, as a youth, I think the family's done a good job with him. And it's not just me and his dad; it's it's everyone. I think all his aunts, uncles, his his um, grandmas, grandpas have instilled in him enough pride, you know, proud to be Native American that you belong wherever in the world. And so him showing up at these events, it wasn't a big deal to him. I think that he was the only Native youth, but sometimes people would say, wow, where are you coming from? Like, where are you from? And maybe he got that every now and then and said, hey, I'm from the Navajo Nation, you know, I'm Navajo. And so they're like, oh, wow, you know, so that was really neat that, you know, he just fell in naturally and, you know, we would get to the race and then he was just kind of gone, you know, and we're like, okay, where did Nigel go? <laughs> and he was already out there pre-writing and hanging out with his peers and doing his thing and, uh, and racing. And so that's, uh, that's how we got started. and. Today, I'm very just really proud to say that I'm just really happy to see that now there are at least 10, 15, 20 racers now and Navajo, Navajo kids. 
And they're all there at these races to support each other because some, I feel like some, you know, are not sometimes not confident enough to be at these places, but they have each other. They have support. They have adults there to support. And it's just been amazing. And I think what I'm seeing is like, they're just really proud of Res Duro. Like we represent Res Duro. So Res Duro just isn't a race, you know, here in Hard Rock. Res Duro is, you know, it's, it's an identity. It's, um, you know, it's something that these young kids say, I'm Res Duro, you know, and I'm, I, I'm this cool kid that is mountain biking on the Navajo Nation and getting out on our lands and and doing, you know, what we, you know, what we love doing and building trails and, you know, dropping and, and doing all these cool things. That's, I feel like Resduro has become an identity and something that these young native youth boys and girls are just very proud of and, and to be a part of. And that's something, if anything else, if, if, if that can grow, that would be the growth that I would, I'd like to see, you know, not so much growth in the race and, and those things, but growth in, I am Res Duro, you know, I, I'm here, I'm Native American. And, and I think Nigel said it. And so anytime Nigel's interviewed, whether any podcast or a video, like we've never, ever instructed him or coached him to say anything. As a matter of fact, every time he's been interviewed, we show up like after the fact and we're like, oh, somebody will come and they'll be like, oh, we're here to interview Nigel. And then we're like, we come and we're like, oh, we, are you guys done? They're like, yeah, we're done interviewing him. We're like, wow, okay, so what did he say? And we don't get to hear what he said till the, either the article comes out or the podcast comes out or we see the video. But um, everything he said, I think in the last video really was good. Several things that from the trails before us, mini doc, short doc that I saw or that I heard um, him say on there was that he's proud to come from a culture and a people that have survived, you know, and that the, the culture and the language is still here. And so, you know, I, I'm really, I was really, you know, happy to hear him say that, but I, and the other piece that I was really happy to hear him say was just how, how, how proud he is that he comes from a family that is culturally intact and that's a good foundation and it's grounding for him. And I, you know, I see that as, you know, having a really good solid roots, you know, solid roots. And then he's the tree and he can just kind of do whatever up on top, but he's rooted and, um, and, and whatever else he does. And right now he just, you know, feeling like he's going through this biking thing. He's moved on to other things. He's a, a crafts person. He makes ceremonial instruments. He carves. So he's on to that now. He's been attending ceremonies, a lot of ceremonies, participating in them and 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 helping, you know, the 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 medicine people as well. So that's been his new path recently. And I, and I know he'll come back. Biking will always be there. It'll always be there. He'll always love that. So that's that's kind of that's who he is and 
And that's why I, it just it seems like he does the interviews best maybe when he's alone and we're not around. And because every interview we've had, we weren't around. So we were never there to watch him and to hear what he's saying. But uh, the stuff he says surprise is, is a good surprise for me anyway, to hear him say the things he says. And uh, I, I just think, wow, he's really paying attention. And he's really, um, I think the family's doing a good job, you know, in, in raising someone who is proud. And, and you know, just historically, uh, so many things have happened in which we've come away feeling ashamed of who we are and not being proud of who we are. And, and so it's just good to see now that our native youth through biking are going to regain that sense of pride and that the world gets to see Res Duro and what Res Duro is, is about. And then that, that view that is automatically then placed on young native youth, you know, and then they, you know, are celebrated in another way. And so, yes, we may have all these high numbers of all these social ills, but then there are youth who are absolutely, you know, surviving out here. And they're proud, you know, to be from the Navajo Nation and to live on their homelands. And they, ha- they can be proud of, you know, their backyard. And they can say, I'm from, you know, whatever part of the community they're from. Um, this is the part of the community I'm from. So I, that's my, my vision. And that's what I see. Um, so Res Duro definitely is more than just a race. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to close this one out. Although I, I have to point out, it was super important for you to get him to finish what he started. Yes. Yes. For, for multiple reasons. And I, and you knew that as an adult mm-hmm. and it was, you know, and I think that's, and that's something that more generally speaking, bikes are really helping people do today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why I appreciate the CHS and, you know, that bike ride, because, you know, people come to, to ride that and are in the process of their suffering through the day they think about, and a lot of them are dealing with a lot of, you know, adversities in their own lives. And the fact that they even survive the day, the fact that they even finish out the day, whether they get towed in or, you know, somebody pushes them up the hill, the fact that they finish the day, it just, and I've seen, you know, the ride and I've supported it. Uh, The year after Nigel did the race, that ride, the year after uh, my husband and I supported um, the ride on a daily basis. Like we were actually, my husband, Marvin was actually riding and I just supported with food. <laughs> I was the chuck wagon. So making sure that we had food for lunch and dinner and the places that some places um, like churches said they would provide dinner. So, you know, just making sure those things were, were in place. But Marvin was just seeing him support writers throughout the day was amazing. And, and there's times I saw him, like I would catch up to them while they're writing and I would see him like having his hand on somebody's back and just like kind of pushing them along 
and like they're trying their best to finish out the day and Marvin's there guiding them and, and, and talking to them, you know, like you can do this. You've got this, you know, you've got this just a little ways, just right there. Look right there, you know, and you know, Vincent said something really profound, Vincent, one of Nigel's mentors and said something really profound uh, in, in his speech about all of this. And he said, look up, look up and see what's ahead. You know, like he tells the kids, look up and see what's ahead, you know, put your chin up, look up, look, you know, and that, you know, and people in their hardships, um, sometimes they lose that, you know, and, and it's just so they get so downtrodden and, but to look up, to, to put your head up and look up and, and look ahead, you know, sometimes that might be all you need, you know, and so profound. And I think about that and that just is so true for the Seahassen ride when when you see them at the end of the day and and you're pushing them into their last 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 few hundred yards for their resting spot for the night and and you encourage them to get get it you know that that they have people there you have people here and you're almost done and somebody will be at the end of when you're done and get off your bike there's people there to take care of you they're going to feed you and they're going to make sure you're okay. And they're going to ask you if you're okay. And if you need anything. And that's, you know, it's just so important. And I think that goes for, you know, all the rides that these guys do. And 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 all of, you know, during Resduro Race is about that. It's about, you know, taking care of each other. And mountain bikers are some of my, they're my favorite people for sure. Because I see that everywhere. I see that anywhere we ride, uh, you, these guys ride and on any trail, you know, I've not seen anybody, you know, not nice to each other. It's always, you know, caring about each other and, you know, checking on each other. And I, I, you know, that's, that's what it all comes down to. Yes, it is. And that's, I really appreciate all of this and I really appreciate your openness for everything and the fact that we can share your story. And I do look forward to the opportunity of, of getting Nigel's side of things. Cause I think that'll be really good for, especially for those that are into the more racing side of things and his, his journey, you know, but this is super important. So I appreciate that. The whole, the message here is, is much, is a lot more than Resduro. And I'm really glad that that's where it went. Yes. Yeah. Like this podcast is just, it's really neat that it is, it's pulling these things out for us. Because it's um, sometimes it's hard to when people ask, like, what is this? You know, and uh, we're trying to describe it. But I think having these good conversations with people that have the natural ability to help you um, piece things together, it's important. And I think this is what this podcast is doing. It's, it's helping us pull, you know, things that uh, that are there that maybe we weren't aware of. Um, and I think, you know, Resduro being an identity is, is what's coming out of this podcast. Like you helped me formulate that and, um, piece that together. Wow. I appreciate that. That it is, it is all this is. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. As you could imagine, we still have a lot more to cover regarding Resduro in months to come. 
I really look forward to sharing these conversations. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. 